Listen to The Astonishing Junk Drawer exclusively at patreon.com slash astonishinglegends. Yeah, people like the smell of people's drawers. You know you were drawn here today, right? Another Chicago story. We'll have an exciting announcement in the next few weeks. We know what everyone's thinking. What do you think she meant by a light being? Everybody poops. It's a famous book. He died, also surrounded in a little bit of mystery. I think you're downplaying it a little too much. Everyone's already <laughs> oversharing on TikTok, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and wherever else. It's quite impressive. Sorry. No. No. Okay. Never All right. Mind. Big ideas here, right? Astonishing Legends would like to thank Wondrium, Squarespace, Mint Mobile, ClickUp, our contributors at Patreon.com, and you, our listeners, for making tonight's show possible. Two weeks ago, we brought you part one of our series on the oft-requested topic of the missing 411 books by author David Politis. As we conclude the series, we plan to take a deeper look at the totality of the cases and their presentation to determine how accurate the mysterious threat of the National Park System actually is. Some folks will say, oh, there's definitely something going on, and it's strange. Others say there's nothing to it. The wilderness is dangerous. It's not unusual for folks to go missing and never turn up. Whatever the case, our goal at Astonishing Legends is to present as much information as possible in a few episodes and let you try and decide what you think. We found a few cases that seem to have more details than Mr. Politis shared initially. At least in his first book on the missing 411. A case in point, Melvin Nadell. Melvin disappeared almost precisely 13 years ago on September 6, 2009. He'd gone hunting with friends in the Santa Fe National Forest, Pecos Wilderness in the Sangre de Cristo Mountains. He and his friends had selected a remote, rugged location to hunt at 11,000 feet. Politis writes the following on page 194 of his book. Late in the afternoon on September 6, Melvin told his friends that he was going to walk down an adjacent trail 50 to 150 yards away and stay in that area. He had a slight knee injury and didn't want to walk long distances. Melvin's specific type of hunting involved setting up a blind and sitting to wait for game to pass. He was carrying a camouflaged bow with zebra-striped arrows and a 44 caliber pistol. At 4.30 p.m., Melvin Nadell started down the trail, never to return. Politis writes that an extensive search was conducted and nothing could be found, including Melvin's bow, arrows, gun, or clothing. Dogs could not track his scent past the 150 yards he said he would walk. State police searched six days, which Politis felt was short for such a healthy man. An organization in North Carolina called the Community United Efforts Center for Missing Persons has a webpage for Melvin Nadell. It offers some extra details about his disappearance. Melvin and his hunting buddies, Joe and Kevin, went hunting. His buddies walked ahead to try to push the animals toward Melvin, who remained close to the base camp. He had a slightly injured knee at this time because days prior, he twisted it after stepping into a gopher hole. By the time that the sun had set, Joe and Kevin went back to camp and Melvin was nowhere to be found. Melvin had set up a hunting blind but that had been deconstructed and put back into his unlocked burgundy Jeep Wrangler. Inside of his Jeep was also a half-eaten Subway sandwich, his GPS unit, and his phone. They called out for him, but got no reply. 
It got dark, so they fired two shots in the air to see if maybe he was lost and needed them to go find him. Two shots were returned, so they quickly got into their cars and turned their bright lights on, honking and looking for him. As you can see, if the many additional details about Melvin's disappearance from this webpage are accurate, then there's a lot more to this story. The hunting blind being taken down, the half-eaten sandwich, the left-behind GPS unit and his phone, then the two answer shots theoretically fired by Melvin. Those would indicate that he was alive, at least at that moment. One thing has not changed, however. As of this recording, no trace of Melvin Nadell has ever been found. So here we are. This case is a microcosm of everything everyone has to say about the presentation of data that Mr. Politis gives us. How significant are the differences in these two accounts? Do they reframe the narrative? Should we disregard all of his work? Or should we work harder to understand what, if anything, is going on here? Welcome back to Astonishing Legends. I'm Scott Philbrook, and this is Forrest Burgess. I believe this scenario will continue to replicate itself, and great people will continue to go missing. David Politis, Missing 411, Western United States and Canada. Join us tonight for the final part of this special series on the Missing 411. And we're back. That we are, folks. A couple of very quick notes tonight. First of all, we wanted to point out that although you cannot find new copies of Politis's books on Amazon, they are still very much available at his website, canammissing.com. That's C-A-N-A-M, as in American, missing.com. So if you're looking for your own copy of any of them, I think there's at least 10 now, if not more there, you can get them at that website. Yes, and after several years of encoding shows, we'd also like to announce that our entire back catalog is now available on our YouTube channel. So for those of you that prefer to listen on YouTube, every single episode of Astonishing Legends that's ever been done is available there now on a playlist called Archived Episodes. We're also publishing the new shows there within 24 hours of them being posted to our main podcast feed. Now, with the main episodes, there's no video of us on camera, just some waveform animation that goes along with the audio, but we are rolling out more live video appearances and specials to that channel in 2023, so now's the time to subscribe at youtube.com slash astonishinglegends if you haven't already. Yes, and we'd like to thank everyone who's been sending stories in for Halloween. We've gotten some great ones already, but we need more. We are looking for the scariest spooky stories you can muster, and we're asking you to write them out and send them to us via email at astonishingcontact at gmail.com. We're looking for stories that fit in the vein of our show. Ghosts, hauntings, cryptids, UFOs are all in play, scary being the theme. The story should have a little meat to it, meaning we're looking for more than just brief encounters. <laughs> Don't send one, though, if you're not willing to be interviewed by us to talk about it on the air, or even tell it yourself to our audience. 
We need these as soon as possible, folks, so email them to us at astonishingcontact at gmail.com and put Halloween in the subject line so it will be easy for us to pick them out in the inbox. Tess is organizing all of them for us as I read this. Yes, again, that's astonishingcontact at gmail.com. The word Halloween in the subject line, please. And remember, we're looking for firsthand accounts if you got them. Secondhand is okay if it's really good, though. And we'll have all of this in the show notes, too. All right, so let's get started here with part two of the Missing 411, Western United States and Canada. Okay, so before we get started, just quickly, and this is something Forrest pointed out, and it's very true, you can wind up dehumanizing the people at the center of these stories, and we don't want to do that. To that end, our friend Paul Gledhill, who we've mentioned on the show before, who has the Anomaly podcast in the UK, put us in touch with the father of one of the victims from Polite's first book, Jared Adadero. Jared was three years old when he vanished in 1999 from the Comanche Peak Wilderness, west of Fort Collins, Colorado. Jared's remains were found about four years after he vanished. His father, Alan, wrote a book called Missing, When the Sun Sets, the Jared Atadero story. And uh, son, in that case, is spelled S-O-N. It's a good book. I actually have purchased it and started it myself. And Forrest, I will pass it on to you when I finish. Mm -hmm. Um, It's very... Enthralling and difficult as a father, as you might imagine, to read. I'm sure, yeah. Jared's case was also featured in the first Missing 411 documentary, so many of you will likely be familiar with it. So when we reached out to Alan, he said he would sit down and talk with us on YouTube to talk about Jared's story at a future date. So we're putting that on the books for later, but we wanted to remind people that each of these cases is a person with family and loved ones who've been left behind and devastated by their loss in a lot of instances. In other cases, people have turned up, but these are all very human stories, and we need to not forget that. After eight years of doing this, we've learned more about human behavior than the paranormal, I would say. Just because at the heart of these stories and legends and tales that we cover are people and how people react to them. Otherwise, why get into them? That's right. And, you know, it's funny because we we don't always solve the mystery, as everyone knows, uh, the whole mystery solve thing. But we sure do learn a lot about people, like Forrest just said. So when you start to poke around online for reactions to David Politis' work, you quickly find that he has a polarizing effect on people, or the work does. There seems to be a lot of different angles or ways that people come down. One of them is uh, to go for full character assassination. It's vitriolic. Uh, some people accused us of of making a mistake by giving the man a platform, by even discussing, by the way, 10 years worth of books that have been all over the place in the paranormal world forever. These folks are also convinced he's an opportunist out to get rich off his work, and you're stupid for believing any of it. And I think I speculated that authors don't make a lot of money. Then we got emails about, like, you make a lot of money. Of course he made money. And it's like, okay, fine. I don't care how much money he made. The (laughs) point is. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, one of my concluding uh, thoughts was that, in some sense, it doesn't matter how much a project of any kind makes or loses. It probably has no effect on the data there within, which is what you should look at. Right, exactly. It's the same thing as Roger Patterson being a showman, possible huckster, uh, he's out to make a buck, sell a movie, whatever. It doesn't matter because what you should look at is what's on film. The movie itself. That's right. Is that a dude in a suit? Yeah. Or is it a a real biological entity? Right. That's the consideration because the rest of it really doesn't matter. It doesn't make it any more credible either way. That's my point. It doesn't have really much of a difference in far as the truth of the data or what's left in the work or what's left out. 
You have to look at the work, at the data itself, and that's what we're trying to do here. I agree. So circling back around to some of the other angles or reactions to Mr. Politis's work, there's also a camp that has a devotion to the idea of the missing 411 being paranormal, even though he doesn't get real specific about what he thinks it might be, at least not in the first book mm-hmm. and uh, not in the second book, I don't believe either. Some things are coming out now. He's taken some new directions. There was just an announcement, I think, uh, in the past couple of days, a trailer for a movie connecting things to UFOs now. So let's not say connecting. Let's say uh, okay. it's mentioned. You're going to have to look at it yourself. And again, this is a conclusion arrived at after over 10 years of his own research. So I can't vouch for anything that sounds more woo, less woo, uh, just right, or it's still a bunch of uh, hogwash. You're going to have to look at the evidence and the data yourself once again and make your own decision because that should be the case with everything. That's right. Those folks that are real stalwart believers in the missing 411, some of them seem to have almost a blind faith. In all the cases, let's not question this. This is something is definitely up. Let's just take the whole thing, and and that's how we should look at it in the big picture. However, there's a lot of people who are more in the middle on it, people who aren't afraid to approach something like this with a more open mind, and who on a case-by-case basis, they might agree or disagree with the cases Politis presents. Is it okay to think one case should have had more due diligence, but another one defies explanation, even with that diligence? It's also the things found within that case, because as we're saying, we haven't come across any that were totally made up out of whole cloth. These events and incidents did happen, but the known things that did happen within that event timeline, the actions and the evidence found differs a little depending on what source you go to and what people believe right. about it. And that could flavor and influence your thought about the whole case. So I just want to make that clear. It's not the entire case, but how the information is relayed from that case and the sources and what's there and what isn't. So that's right. So you have to personally decide if you're one of those folks that's going to discard all the stories because you found something wonky about one of them, or are you going to believe all the stories because you've the other one you looked into, everything seemed right. I don't know. The folks to me who are open to looking at the totality of the data, case by case, are the ones who can probably really see the big picture. These are the folks that see the book as intriguing if it's taken with a grain of salt. After all, grain of salt is often what comes from critical thinking. Now, it doesn't make any more sense to say all of it is bizarre because one story is bizarre any more than it is to say it's all bunk because in this one case, this guy was found later and Politis never mentioned it. Well, yeah, we're going to be talking about one of those. But there's a lot of information here and we're the mind that it should all be critically reviewed. And I guess for me personally anyway, if one case resonates with you more than another one, regardless of your disposition, then you do more research on it yourself and make your call after that. When it comes to personal beliefs, the research is always ultimately your responsibility, not David Politis's or mine or Forrest's. It's up to you. If you are looking for a paranormal show that attacks guests and authors of discussed books and research, whether they actually appear on the show or not, Astonishing Legends isn't it. There are podcasts out there that do that, and several of them are clearly a lot bigger than we are. Uh, We've tried to get more than a few guests on the show that wouldn't join us because they had been ridiculed on another show. That's a double bummer because it prevents us from getting those guests to come on, and it also makes them afraid to ever tell their story again. No one who agrees to come on a show as part of the entertainment and information the show provides should be ridiculed by the person they're doing a favor for with their appearance. At least that's just how I feel. Unless they've signed up for that ahead of time. It's one thing if you're it's celebrity deathmatch. Mm-hmm. That's fine. You know you're going in, you're <laughs> going to tangle, and that's the whole point of it. But that's not what we're doing here. 
I think it's okay to ask hardball questions yes. and to be pressed on things, but there's a respectful way to do it. And often in the comments of everything that we see, there's a lot of folks who don't believe that that should be the case anymore. Just call them what they are and right. they'll tell you what to call them. But guess yeah. what? That's not how we roll. There is such a thing as libel and slander legally still. Yes. And also, I believe in that old-fashioned notion of being respectful to somebody, whether you believe them or not. And that's how we're going to present it. But yeah, it doesn't mean that you just ask softball questions. You can press them on things, but there's a way to do it. And the way to get them to feel comfortable in telling you their truth is not to be mildly insulting to them. And then finally, for me, I would just add at the end of this introduction here to part two, where we're going to cover a lot of information that there may be a handful of people that are disappointed that we covered this topic at all. I would judge by the responses we've got, that's a very small minority, but I would just add that we're covering this topic mainly because of two reasons. And one, it's one of the most requested topics listeners have asked us to cover over the years. So we're very happy that we finally found a place in the lineup to present it for everyone's enjoyment, including ours, no matter what you believe about it. We don't cover these stories just because we can prove or disprove something. Or if your show is called Hellier, you did or did not find goblins. <laughs> That's not the point. It's the yeah. journey. And secondly, we're covering it because like most every subject or story we cover, we personally are interested in a topic and want to know what it's all about. What's really going on with it? Absolutely. Well said, my man. Well, it's time for us to get into part two, which longtime listeners of our show know is a place where we discuss our own theories and ideas. And we also address what we personally think about what we're presenting. And we said that in part one, that we would be doing this in part two. Yeah, we did. Um, did so we? Yeah. now we're doing it, just like we always do when we get to a second yeah. part, and maybe sometimes a third or, or more. <laughs> uh, well, I found something I thought was pretty interesting, very apropos here, and it addresses one of the big questions that you may or may not have. Again, it's a little like people whistling past the graveyard. Well, I don't believe in anything spooky. That's ridiculous. But I'm not going to walk through that abandoned graveyard yeah, at midnight right. on Halloween. <laughs> and in this case here with the parks, people, you know, they ask us, "What do you think something's going on? Should I be worried? I'm glad I didn't listen to this topic before we went on our family vacation in a national park. Well, I'll just tell you right now, I don't think you have anything to worry about. However, just how dangerous are the U.S. national parks? Well, there was a study done, and it's fairly recent, and I found it on the Can-Am website because there's a rebuttal to it from the Can-Am project, but it's a Sunset Magazine article online, and this article uh, was published on January 20th, 2021, and written by J.D. Simpkins. And basically what you find out with the Sunset Magazine article online is that it's also covering a previous article by Outphoria magazine, who had a study commissioned and received information from the U.S. National Park Service. So, and in reading the Sunset Magazine article, so it, it covers both, I think, and it explains a little bit more. It gives more examples. Right. So that's what we're going to base our discussion here off of. Also, it's what David Politis responded to. So it's a little more apropos. The article goes on to say and explain how this came about is that a recent UK-based study took a closer look at one aspect of America's national parks that has, as they say, seldom been explored. And those are the parks that have the unfortunate distinction of being the most dangerous. And of course, if you go on family vacations like this, and millions of us have, you want to know, should I pay any more attention to one than the other? What do I have to look out for? 
Well, of course, as many of you stated in its basic logic that the wilderness can be a very dangerous place just on its own, and fatalities are no different for the U.S. national parks as they are for just BLM land, let's say, just wild open territory. And so the author for the study done, commissioned by Outforia, it seems, is just saying that all these different categories people have succumbed to. It could be a drowning, wild animal attacks, all the things that we think are pretty common. And I don't know if that over a thousand person count is for the 10 years that were looked into the, to the study, but I'm going to go with that because that was the length of the study. So they, they looked at a 10 year span from 2010 to 2020. That's where they're saying over a thousand people have died in the U.S. national parks. That's about, a, works out to about a hundred people a year on average which would be, yeah. again, on average, of course, I'm sure they happen at specific times of year, like Politis points out, but right. if you were average it, you would say that one person might have gone missing for every three days of the year. This story is all about patterns. We're looking yeah. for patterns. And here's another thing, you know, to, to quote you just popped in my head. If you said uh, one person goes missing every three days, uh, by that innocuous statement, if one person actually did go and it was exactly every three days, right at noon, that yeah, would right. freak people out, wouldn't it? Right. Why is it right. so, sure. per, it's too precise now. What's yeah. happening? So these numbers though, I think you'll find pretty interesting. So that original Outforia article is titled, Danger Parks, Which U.S. National Parks Are the Most Dangerous? And that one was written by Jennifer Schultz, last updated on February 1st, 2022. So fairly recently because you have right. to compile the data. And of course, they don't have it for the, the current year yet. It's not over. And we will have links to both articles so you can compare, but they're, they're essentially the same. But uh, we're going mostly off of the comments from the Sunset uh, Magazine article. So uh, that article states that very few researchers had previously studied all of the 63 national parks in the US. And that's how many we have. And they have not studied really in depth how many are that dangerous and how many deaths have occurred. So the author of that study, though, for Outforia, they submitted a FOIA request to the National Park Service for the data on the number of deaths and their causes for that 10-year span. So they did get some information back. Grand Canyon National Park is the second most visited park in the U.S., and it reported the most fatalities at 134. And again, that's for the 10-year span. You'd think it would be mostly from falls from the high and narrow ledges at the canyon's walls. Uh, but less than half of those fatalities were from falls. Of those 134 deaths, quoting the study's author, 27 people have died from falls in the Grand Canyon since 2010, but 42 have died from medical or natural causes, many of which were due to the extreme heat in the area. As you've ever been there, okay. it gets pretty hot, especially uh, up top or down below, depending, through a lot of the year. And NPS officials, National Park Service officials, said about the Grand Canyon conditions, quote, in the summer, temperatures on exposed parts of the trail could reach over 120 degrees Fahrenheit. That's, for our UK folks, that's 49 degrees Celsius. In the shade, 120 degrees in the shade. Hiking in these extreme conditions can lead to serious health risks like heat exhaustion, heat stroke, hyponatremia, and death, end quote. One example would be 49-year-old Catherine Hui, or Howe, H-O-U-E, who sadly died shortly after appearing disoriented and unsteady while hiking in those temperatures, which registered as high as 114 degrees Fahrenheit at the time. Oof. 
Right. So it's no joke. You have to be prepared. But even then, like I said, it can sneak up in you very fast, even if you're very fit. And that's another point about the stories that we're talking about is that it doesn't really matter, it seems, how experienced you are, how good a shape you are. People can find themselves in precarious and deadly situations very quickly, even with all that experience and gear. That's right. Well, the next most dangerous park, according to the study, is Yosemite with 126 fatalities. And then after that is the Great Smoky Mountains National Park with 92. So just a side note here, me personally, it's a lot of the comments that we get in the feedback. We're going to hear from a couple of professionals, at least I believe, but most of the feedback we get is what I've noticed. And the main determining factor, whether this is uh, there's something to all this or nothing, or maybe a blend of both, is that us, we, the average person, are offering opinions, not the criminologist. Uh, the safety or accident statistician, the national park ranger, except for one, we're going to hear from them, the law enforcement officer, except for uh, retired David Politis, or what the average detective thinks is strange and unusual. That aspect of it is paramount to a discussion on this. What really is strange and unusual when it comes to this kind of stuff? And even by experts, you will have disagreements. Because what seems to keep coming up for many of these cases is that, uh, you know, like many of us, myself included, believe there could be natural factors at play, if not outright paranormal stuff. And the top 10 culprits seem likely mundane, like deadly things like environmental exposure, animal attacks, or even murder. And I say somewhat mundane, sadly, except for, uh, for murder, of course, because in our fairly comfortable urban and suburban existence, those primitive dangers of exposure and wild animals are pretty rare. Again, ex sadly, except for homicide in urban areas. So let's take a look at the study to see what a recent analysis has to say about the magnitude, the likelihood, and cause of death as recorded and reported by the NPS of the United States in our parks. And you see if you think this is mundane or unusual. Okay, so the Great Smoky Mountains National Park is by far the most visited in the country. So you might think by statistics and probability alone, they would have the most fatalities, right? And what would you think is the leading cause of death? Any guesses? Falls? Drowning? Getting lost and dying of exposure? Animal attacks? Well, according to the study, they're number three on the list for most dangerous, and it wasn't any of those things just mentioned. It was motor vehicle crashes at 37 in the last 10 years. Being that this park, or a good portion of it is in North You've Carolina. You've been there, right? Yeah, frequently, mm -hmm. all my whole life. And as recently as a month or two ago, I have a Friends of the Smokies personalized license plate, actually, Ooh, nice. on my yeah. Land Rover. Mm -hmm. This doesn't surprise me, because let me tell you something about the Smokies. The smoke is no joke. It's fog, and it is thick. And I mean <laughs> well, the this, thickest the fog I've ever seen, even at sea. It's thicker yeah. than fog I've seen at sea. Like, wow. it is just like you get to a point where it's not just slow down, it's find a place to pull over because mm -hmm. you can't drive. But then on top of that, the roads are super windy, they're super narrow, right. and yeah. the locals are all going a million miles an hour, yeah. and then there's a nice mix of tourists who are scared to death. So like, <laughs> well, you put that all together, you're going to have accidents. So this makes sense to me. Okay, yeah. well, that's what I'm saying. But again, it's uh, the most visited national park, I think just by size and, and where it's at, but it doesn't have the most fatalities. And certainly 
one that you probably wouldn't think of maybe in the national parks, because when you drive through them, usually you're going very slow and you're very cautious. Well, that's not the case here. And also, I I was a kid, I wondered why they call it the Smoky Mountains. Was it more delicious? Was it uh, hickory smoked, uh, applewood? What's going on there? And it's like, no, it's because of the fog makes it look smoky, like there's smoke in the trees. It's just beautiful. Every sunset looks like a painting. Well, let's now take a look at the most common cause of death. So in the last 10 years, this study found Uh, The most common cause of death in U.S. national parks was, as I just said, determined to be from falls with 245 fatalities. Okay. Next up, the second most common cause of death was categorized as a quote-unquote natural death at 192. Those would be things like environmental exposure, heat or cold-related fatalities. What we just described there in Grand Canyon is that you get overheated and next thing you know, it's you're too far gone. You can also get overheated when it's extremely cold there. And then you've got a whole new sort of situation, which I've been close to personally, (laughs) myself on a long hike. Yeah. I had a friend, uh, it was one year at Burning Man and, and, uh, he said, yeah, yeah, I was drinking water and various fluids. He, he, not too much alcohol, but it kind of snuck up on him, you know, as the afternoon progressed and he, this is the most interesting thing, and I, I say this as a, a cautionary tale, too, is that they were playing, you know, spinning records under the tent, and he just next thing noticed that he was far away from the camp, from the tent, mm. and out into the fringe, out where not many people were, and he didn't remember how he got out there. He just kind of wandered off, and this is the most extraordinary thing, is that he said he could see the camp and where his, his friends were, maybe 50 yards away, but he couldn't figure out how to get back there. Interesting. That was the most interesting thing is that it's like, what, what do you mean? You could see them. Just walk towards them. He's like, yeah, I, I can't explain it. Is that you're so confused and your mind's so foggy when you're, uh, you have uh, heat exhaustion. I didn't know what to do. I just kind of was like wandering around circles. And fortunately, some other people came up and they saw he was dazed and confused. And they said, dude, you don't look good. Uh, we need to get you some shade. And I think he was, he was a guy from Washington. I'm, I'm sure he was bright beat red. And they took him back to the tent and they had the Rangers come by And he said what they did was they started giving him flat room temperature Coke, Coca Cola, because he could not keep water down. They tried to give him water, he would drink it, it just kept coming up. And he said, Look, if you can't keep the Coke, the flat Coke down that's warm, we're going to have to get a helicopter. Right. Because you're about to reach the tipping point going the other way. Yeah. Oh, wow. Now, let's talk about the real surprise of this study. What do you want to guess is the third highest common cause of death in our national parks? Sarah, drum roll, please. Wait, no, no drum roll. Okay, I, I can. I don't need one. That's fine. <laughs> she might have. Put Sarah, one you in can. There. You don't have to. We yeah, won't no, know you until put, it airs. So, <laughs> yeah, no. It'll be a mystery. Quoted from the study: "Quote: 166 deaths in the country's national parks went unexplained, with an quote inside this undetermined end quote cause of death." Close quote. That's for all deaths in all 63 parks in the last 10 years. Wait, last 10 years. So this is unrelated to the study. This is recent information that you've got, like literally the last 10 years as of right now, up through 2021 or whatever. This is part of the study from 2010 to 2020. Out of all deaths that occurred in U.S. national parks, 166 of these deaths were ruled undetermined. Okay. And the Sunset article describes that as alarming. And I would too. Yeah. Now, that's not to say undetermined, quote unquote, means anything like paranormal or non-mundane, extraordinary, uncommon, or conspiratorial. 
but by the dictionary definition of undetermined, meaning not definitely or authoritatively decided, settled, or identified, it could arguably, by definition, correlate to, quote, something not understood or beyond understanding, something profound, inexplicable, or secretive quality or character, end quote. In other words, mysterious, a mystery. So what the heck's going on? What do you mean the third largest cause of death is undetermined? You yeah, think and that, with... that's interesting because at that point you're saying, well, we did identify falls. We did identify yeah. vehicular accidents. We have identified heart attacks, heat stroke, whatever else. What is that leaving? And we know about animal attacks too, which we'll get into the details on that. In... Yeah, I mean, this is what I'm thinking is that we all like to laud how advanced our forensic technology is. And it is. I mean, part of that is is overblown by TV, right? They call it the CSI factor. It's like, it's good. It's not as good as what you see on the TV shows. Where yeah, yeah. The whole lab is solving every crime that comes through. But I would think out of all those deaths where they find you, the person is sadly deceased. They find them, but they can't determine what killed them out of all these characteristics, right? That I think that would be, uh, and I'm not talking about deaths from like 50 years ago where you just have bones and it's really hard to determine what the cause of death was. These are at least within that 10 years. And I would say that you're found much sooner after you gone missing or you had expired. So therefore, there would be better evidence of what happened to you. So, and this is just my thinking, but I would add even, even if the causes of death were ruled natural or accidental, in some ways, it could still be a mystery if we don't know what the victim's final experiences were leading up to or how they died, or if they lived through the ordeal, but they couldn't remember what happened to them during it. I mean, what led them to the place where they ended up? Did they make a mistake, get caught off guard? Were they running from something? animal or human, if they fell, were they pushed? Probably not, but who knows? Those cases do pop up in Southern California, by the way, where uh, it's just easy to uh, shove somebody. So were those undetermined deaths from common, ordinary, explainable, rational causes? Maybe, probably. The answer is no one knows until more evidence is discovered. All anyone can do is speculate, barring additional clues. So let's look at how that count and categorization compares to other classifications in the study with the top 10 dangerous national parks in the U.S. I'm just going to look at the top 10 here just to even it out. The classification categories in the analysis include the number of annual visitors, drowning cases, motor vehicle crashes, falls, transportation like a bicycle or boat, environmental, poisoning, wildlife slash animal, other, that's interesting, medical slash natural death, homicide, legal intervention, probably being shot by the authorities, maybe undetermined, and then a grand total in this grid here. Bear with me a second. I want to pitch a new television series called The Other Files. And then all all you do (laughs) is you go out and you look at these other cases and you try to figure out what happened. Well, (laughs) I wondered about that because you would think, again, what we're trying to point out here is that our natural preconceived notions, which we have too, sometimes are incorrect. Or you just make assumptions based on, well, how do you know? Like, well, I've been camping a lot. Well, that's, <laughs> I have been too. I am not an expert. Right. And again, again, as we say about everything, even the experts disagree on what's going on. So here though, it's like you you have these assumptions of like, well, yeah, you're out in the woods. Of course, it's dangerous. I, I've been... I don't want to worry anybody, you know, but there's been a couple of times where it's like, 
if I don't find somebody quickly, this could turn bad pretty quickly. And uh, fortunately, I, you know, I didn't go too crazy or off the grid. You know, you find the person, you find your bearings and I had enough supplies, but you know, you do wonder about that because it can happen. If you, if you've done any amount of camping, that's happened yeah. to you at some point. That, I mean, that's just how I feel. As, right. Uh, right. Sooner or later you have that moment. Sometimes it's only fleeting, but then it's that moment where it's like, mm-hmm. uh oh, <laughs> this could get bad fast. Hi, I'm Rebecca, and you're listening to Astonishing Legends with Scott Philbrook and Forrest Burgess. Now back to the show. So just a note about the methodology in the data sources from the article. It says all figures relate to fatalities in the USA's 62 national parks, and parentheses here, with figures for Sequoia and Kings Canyon combined into one. So we just combine those, which occurred from 2010 to 2020. And this was sourced, once again, from a Freedom of Information request made to the National Park Service, and they answered. So these numbers may have increased since the study report appeared in the article in January 2020. But here's a rundown by park and the categories with the most significant numbers, I thought. Uh, This is just me totaling this up. So it's not scientific, but these numbers are. (laughs) So I calculated as carefully as I could. And don't worry, I'm not going to read them all. All right, so number one, Grand Canyon in Arizona, they have 5.9 million annual visitors. All visitor counts, and this is me saying this, I rounded to the fifth decimal point, unless otherwise specified. So 5.9 million visitors, 134 total deaths, 42 from medical slash natural deaths, 27 falls, 17 undetermined, 13 drownings, zero animal attacks, zero homicides. The second most dangerous park, Yosemite, 4.4 million annual visitors, 126 total deaths, 45 from falls, 26 from medical slash natural, 17 drownings, 13 undetermined, zero animal attacks, zero homicides. The third largest, Great Smoky Mountains of North Carolina and Tennessee, 12.5 million total visitors per year, 92 total deaths, 37 motor vehicle crashes, 15 medical or natural deaths, 13 undetermined, no animals, no homicides. Number four, Sequoia and Kings Canyon parks in California combined, 1.8 million visitors, 75 deaths total, 25 from falls, 13 drownings, 10 medical or natural, 13 undetermined, no animals, no homicides. Yellowstone Park in Wyoming and Montana and Idaho coming in number five with 4 million total visitors per year, 52 total deaths, 12 motor vehicle crashes, 12 medical or natural deaths, seven undetermined, zero homicides, but three wildlife slash animal related fatalities. They don't say what the animals are, but I was going to guess people getting too close to Buffalo. Yeah, that seems to happen. Yeah, you hear, we see that on the news quite a bit over here. So now just to speed through the the rest of the top 10, tied for the sixth deadliest parks are Denali in Alaska with 601,000 visitors and Mount Rainier in Washington State, both with 51 total deaths. Number eight is Rocky Mountain Park in Colorado, 4.6 million visitors, 49 deaths. Number nine is Grand Teton in Wyoming with 3.4 million visitors and 48 deaths. And number 10 is Zion in Utah, 4.4 million visitors, 43 deaths in 10 years. And just because I like them, number 11 is Death Valley in California and Nevada, 1.7 million visitors, 41 deaths, 
And number 12 is Glacier Park in Montana with 3 million visitors, 40 deaths in 10 years. See, now one would think that Death Valley would be higher up the list for a couple of right. reasons. One, not the least of which being that its name is Death Valley. <laughs> that's what I thought too, and that's also, why I included it, yes. It's hot. I mean, it's always yeah, hot. It's a yeah. dangerous place to not have shelter and not be prepared. No. Also, I was born there, pretty mm. close to there anyway, China Lake Naval Base. But, I, and I love Death Valley. It is magnificently right. beautiful, but talk about, you feel like you're on another planet. And then on top of that, also in an oven. It's hot, like <laughs> no, I've been, real hot. I have been out there in late summer and uh, in the shade, it was 117. Yeah. But we prepared accordingly. We went on a little adventure and hiked up a mountain. And I I was, uh, this happened, geez, might be 10 years or more. And it was I was kind of sad to hear this because you want visitors to the area. We welcome people from all over. And it was a story in the paper that uh, of this DJ from, uh, it might have been the Netherlands, fairly well known. And he come to an American, you know, their American vacation here, he and his girlfriend, who I think was German, and they rented a car, I think it was like a Dodge Charger Challenger. And they're just driving around. And I think they went off road a little bit just on the shoulder. And yeah. they got the car stuck, got the tire stuck. They didn't really know what to do. I think they had a little bit of water with them, even maybe a gallon. And the guy decides he's going to walk maybe to a gas station. I'm not sure something they passed, or just to walk to a, a larger road to get help. He only made it a couple of miles. His girlfriend then, after a, a while, and I'm sure the car just running and uh, with the AC on, decided to go after him. And she only made it like maybe a half mile, maybe a quarter mile. It was something surprisingly short distanced. And that just tells you how easily you can get stuck. They didn't go off-roading. They're just on a side road. And how yeah. quickly you can die when you're not conditioned to that or, you know, yeah. you're not used to that and you're not prepared properly. So very dangerous. And yes, this is a public service announcement. All of this, the reason we're talking about all this, it's good time for all of us to remember to be cautious and careful wherever you are. That's one of the many points about this. Yeah. Can I throw something in just real quick? I just sure. want to throw something in fast here as somebody who's been stuck out in remote areas. There's two things that you can do nowadays or a couple things you can do. It depends on your budget, of course. Actually, satellite phones mm -hmm. are no longer outrageously expensive. They're still pretty expensive, right, but you can right. get one and you can get cards where you can top up minutes. Mm -hmm. And if that can see the sky, you can make a phone call. And so that's mm -hmm. one thing you can do. However, there are also uh, what they call PLBs or personal locator beacons out there at all different price points. And these are great. You can get them. In fact, I just recently bought one for a trip I thought I was going to be taking that got canceled at the last minute. But this one I got is a McMurdo Fast Find 220 PLB or personal mm. locator beacon. It's on Amazon. And we're getting nothing for this. This is not a sponsor <laughs> of us. I'm just giving you honest information yeah. here. It's $254 I'm seeing right now here on Amazon. I have one now. Mm -hmm. It's great. It's got a little button. You hit it if you're in imminent danger of death. Right. And they come. It goes, the signal goes up to a satellite with a GPS signal and they will come, whether it's helicopters or whatever, they'll come get you. Yeah. You only hit it if you're at a last resort because it's going to be, right. you know, fifty hundred thousand dollars worth of gear and equipment and, yes. uh, and putting other people's lives at risk. But as long as you can see the sky you can get a rescue. So if you're right. going on a trip and you're worried at all about something like the story that Forrest just told, it's a good thing to look into a personal locator mm -hmm. beacon. You have to register them online with the government or with the uh, service. Uh, yeah, I think it's the 
NOAA, I can't remember who, but you go online, you register it, whatever, they know your name mm -hmm. and phone numbers and all of that, and you tell them what kind of trips you take, and then you go out, and, and these things have a battery that lasts five or six years that mm -hmm. you can change later, so you just keep it with you, and you hit that panic button, and they come and, and save you. Well, so there you just go. something to think about. Yeah, and yeah. also another yeah. point talked about in these cases that some people still say, uh, well, they wonder why somebody would crawl to a ridgeline or a higher location. One is to get a better look, of course. Uh, Another factor people might be thinking about is maybe to get cell reception. But a lot of these cases that yes. where this happened were pre-cell phone or their children, which did not have right. cell phones. So maybe a child might think of that, but... Yeah, Politis, his work goes into the early 1900s right. in, in the missing 411, and he talks about some of these older cases that obviously predate that technology. Exactly. So, so once again, adding up totals for the top 10 most dangerous parks in the last 10 years in those presumed classifications... For the categories, once again, we've been mostly talking about, these are the totals. 201 falls, 122 medical slash natural deaths, 89 undetermined. And again, that's just for the top 10 parks. Just for the top yes, 10. Yes, right. Gotcha. Uh, 85 environmental deaths, only four wildlife slash animal related fatalities, Yellowstone with three and Denali with one. Only six wildlife slash animal caused deaths in all 63 parks. Only one homicide in the top 10 parks, which was in Rocky Mountain National Park in Colorado. Five total homicides for all 63 parks in the last 10 years. 121 total deaths from all parks by environmental causes. 192 medical slash natural deaths in all parks, all 63. Okay. So, do they seem lower to you than uh, does that does that uh Well, certainly the the animal attacks absolutely. Yeah. And that's something I think that our audience needs to know because people are so convinced that a lot of these cases are just animal attacks. Right. And that's what they say. Oh, it's an animal attack. A bear got him. Blah, blah, blah. <laughs> what? I don't care how much you knew about bears. Right. A bear got him. Okay. Yeah. That's fine. Just saying here, look how rare these animal right. attacks are. Right. They're rare except for these idiots in Yosemite that try to put baby buffaloes in the backs of their cars or whatever. Oh, that, uh, yeah. And that person didn't die either. That poor animal had to be put down. I don't know if it was You should never mess something. with someone else's kids. I don't no. care if it's human or animal, especially bears. Yeah, yeah. The takeaways here now. Did you notice there seemed to be one category missing from the list of fatality causes? Any guesses? Hmm? Uh, well, mm -hmm. I already know because mm -hmm. I can see what you wrote. Oh, you know it because I told you. Yeah. It's not fair. I don't want to cheat. I guess that was maybe for our, our audience more so. Yes. Do you know, yeah. folks? <laughs> Perhaps you know. Perhaps yeah. it's you. That category, it was people having gone missing from the U.S. national parks. Now, right. to be fair, this study focused on known deaths and someone missing may not be dead, of course. Maybe they just took off starting a new life. On the other hand, apparently there is an NPS classification for missing and presumed dead. We're going to hear about that in a minute. And also, just quickly, I'm going to say, I get someone who does watch a lot of those crime shows that you were making fun yeah, so of. Yeah, so do I. <laughs> of course, yeah. right. It's ridiculous how many investigators say, oh, they went to start a new life. You can't report a missing yet. They went to start a new life. They went to start a new yeah. life. It's like... Tens of thousands of people every year are going to start new lives. It's like, how many people right. are really doing that? I just don't think it's that many. <laughs> I think it's also- It makes me crazy uh, when they're like, okay, yeah, well, this is not, you know, I'm not Jason right. Bourne where I'm going to ditch all this stuff and get a bunch of new passports and vanish no, to I an know. Aruba. I, yeah. I don't get that part of it. I mean, I get it in a domestic abuse situation, whatever, but it's right. hard to pull off sure. without a bunch of knowledge. It's very hard to pull something like that off. I have True. a book 
on it. How to Disappear. Mm-hmm. I've got it. It's a great book. Well, you're still here. I, I still know how to get a hold of you. And I, I don't mean yeah. to chuckle, but the you know these people were yeah. found, certainly, yeah. and uh, went of their own volition out yeah. into the wilds. But I think as we see here in the analysis that we're going to get to, especially the skeptical analysis, I don't think it's an equal equivalency or a false equivalency of how many people go missing in urban settings as opposed to wildlife settings. Just different magillas there, different things going on. But it certainly happens everywhere. And yeah, I think you're more likely to go missing in an urban setting. However, these are some other takeaways for me. For the top 10, more deaths were classified as undetermined or unexplained than from environmental causes. Again, that to me was surprising. I thought there'd be a lot more from something obvious like bad weather, right? The total number of visitors doesn't mean total deaths or total undetermined deaths. It's not a volume thing, right? It's not just uh, probability and volume, and there you get, you're just going to have more, right? Because there's other factors, exactly. Right. Statistically, it, there's less randomness to it than I thought there would be, I guess. Yeah, exactly. Or just people yeah. think, well, well there's going to be more people. It's like a big city. You're going to have more homicides. Not necessarily. Right. I mean, yeah, there's a lot of variations. That's what I'm saying here, especially uh, a lot of different things to consider. You can't just make that one-to-one equivalency. So, again, right. total number of visitors doesn't mean total deaths or total undetermined. Surprisingly few or no animal-related deaths or homicides in most parks. Right. National parks and the wilderness can be dangerous, of course, yes, but not that dangerous for the total number of deaths, it seems. Again, not like cities or suburbs, so all things being equal, I don't think it's equal, and maybe not a suitable comparison. Obviously, urban centers are, you know, they're much more populous and people go missing more, and people are probably more relaxed, but more aware because of the unfamiliar surroundings. I would say the average family, it's like, it's very relaxing and you should do it. You commune with nature, hit your reset button. I recommend it. Get away from a screen, breathe some fresh air, but be careful. But so what I'm saying here is that you get out there and it's a foreign environment, even though you're relaxed, maybe uh, you've stripped away all the noise of the city and the suburbs and you can really pay attention to what's in front of you for once in a long time. So maybe you're a little bit more aware, but then again, there's a lot of woods out there. <laughs> there's a lot of things hiding behind trees and bushes, but you're probably okay. So I think the real question is, are the cases in the woods more likely to be unusual in specific and concentrated areas? Or are there concentrations of mysterious deaths in specific urban areas? That's intriguing. Nobody's really done that. It's just too much, probably. It's like, right. it, oh, don't go to the corner. <laughs> I mean, yes, there's bad neighborhoods. Uh, there's bad alleys in every city that you don't go to because they're dangerous. But what about, I'm just talking about people going missing, just specifically missing. Uh, they were seen here and then no longer around. But that's another analysis for another time. But what's more mysterious or disturbing to you? A missing person case with only weird clues left behind? Or a case where someone was found deceased, but no one can say why, at least not publicly? Yeah, I would have to go with the not being able to say why. And because I know what you said, that television exaggerates our forensic capabilities, but at the very least, one would should be able to say if someone was out in the wild and they fell or had a heart attack or had yeah. heat exhaustion or a stroke or some other kind of thing, we can identify that in the autopsy. Right. If you right. can't say that it's any of those things, what is it? Even dying of fright, which is a real thing, they mm-hmm. should be able to identify that. Uh, but they yeah. can't figure it out what's going on there. There's no data on how long these people were left in the woods. I'm sure uh, DNA bodily processes break down pretty fast. 
there is a period of time where that becomes more difficult. But like I said, these aren't 50 year old cases. This is within 10 years. And so uh, again, if you watch all those crime shows, you know that from a set of bones, they can determine quite a bit. So another thing I wonder about, and of course, people are going to point to the conspiratorial here, is that why those facts or figures were not included? Are they not kept? Were they not asked for? That's fair. It's like, hey, you didn't ask us about people going missing. You just asked about people dying. That we have. So was it not asked for? Was it asked for not included? You and I don't know at this point. Other people may be able to find that out if that's included in the FOIA report. Well, that comes back to the idea that Politis said about uh, the parks not keeping track of it. You know, we don't know. Right. But I feel like they've been pressured to do that more since his books came out. Uh, You know, what would be interesting is to know what if he had some kind of reaction to this article that you brought up. He did. That's uh, yeah, that was in the posting on the canammissing.com website. Okay. It's funny you mentioned that because uh, he does have a little bit more information uh, that we're going to hear about in the podcast that uh, where he was the guest on, where he does say, I think it was Yosemite finally came out with numbers after he made a public inquiry about them and Mm -hmm. kept doing it and it became public. And I think they felt a little pressure, but this is what he has to say about that Sunset Magazine article. And this response is listed on the website. Again, it's uh, part of our links, and it's dated from January 21st, 2021. This article describes fatalities in national parks. What Sunset Magazine fails to address is missing people in national parks and their classifications. The National Park Service has a classification, quote, missing and presumed dead. This classification wipes the case off their missing persons rolls, and it's never seen or heard from again. When you ask for a list of missing people, this is a case carrying this identification would never show up because they aren't missing. They are presumed deceased. NPS knows this classification obstructs researchers, and this is exactly why they did it. It keeps their statistics on missing people low, and it keeps a wall between outside individuals trying to understand how many people are truly missing and the reported error-ridden guidance NPS gives the public, Hmm. closed quote. So he's saying, uh, well, there's a reason they do it. It just, uh, it's not the category and you didn't ask us about it. And once they go missing and presumed dead, they basically stop counting them and investigating. That's his position. Well, after hearing that, I do wonder if some of that number of unidentified are missing people that they've just now classified as deceased. And so it adds to those roles, but they don't know how they die because they're actually missing and presumed dead. Right. So I do wonder if some portion of that number are those cases. I would imagine some of them uh, depending, but uh, again, you're going to have to ask the NPS. Well, so now let's hear a little bit more about how David Politis views this work. And it's a little bit of the origin story too. And I I wasn't aware of this. I didn't want to say too much. I got that information off their website, but in an interview with the Rick and Bubba show, and those guys are fun. I've only seen them from this episode. Rick is Rick Burgess, no relation, Ah. but uh, they do have a lot of fun. It's a fun show to listen to. And again, this is my only exposure to them where they had uh, David Politis on, but He said some interesting things. And again, it was a little bit of the backstory of how he started. So I want to include that as well. And also his ideas of what's going on out there. And again, you may not think that the data presented, let's say, is up to snuff. But if what he's saying here is true, it's again, it's curious. And part of the reason why I was drawn or curious about this topic 10 years ago and never really looked into it, but it's always stuck in the back of my mind, again, because I like the outdoors. And you just, it's one of those little 
brain worms. It's like, really, is there something going on out there? Right. What, are they, what do the authorities know? Uh, you know, it's, and again, it's a little bit of a hearsay. It's a little bit of uh, this and that around your friends. Of uh, It's like nothing to worry about. And then someone's like, well, I heard this from this guy. Maybe you should be worried. So in an interview with Politis on the Rick and Bubba Show podcast, episode 110 from February of 2022, so earlier this year, and it's on YouTube, Politis states that two or three years ago, he'd written about over 60 cases of missing people in Yosemite National Park, which, according to him, has the most missing person cases that fit their profile of any place in the world. He says it's the only park that's come out with a list of missing people. So that was an update to address your comment there. Why did they? Um, right. I think because, uh, yeah, they have a lot and he pressed them and other folks have. And then once the public gets behind it, because again, folks, they work for you. You know, right. <laughs> These are your parks, people. And I mean that in a, this is your land, this is my land kind of way. Well, he goes on to state, Politis, that the cases that fit their unique profile have a history of FBI agents showing up and telling the investigators or sheriffs that are on scene that they're not going to get involved, that they're just there to monitor and write up a report. Now, this is his thoughts here. It tells you that the FBI is monitoring these cases. The importance of this, according to Politis, is that they see something in these cases that most people don't. And the FBI doesn't investigate missing people. They have a subsection in their jurisdictional operating procedure that they can investigate young children that disappear, but they don't investigate missing people, as he says, or adults. So why are these agents showing up on scene with missing adult cases? That's really the million-dollar question, he says. According to Politis, the FBI agents that he's close friends with have told him what the FBI is doing is writing up these reports and sending them to the profiling unit, and they're putting up a massive profile. He says very similar, almost identical, to what he's done in his books, because they all fit the specific profile that he writes about. He says he doesn't write about general missing persons cases. It has to fit his profile. Then Politis goes on about his procedure for building these profiles, and uh, he starts with vetting the cases when he writes to a jurisdiction or sheriff's office about a missing person case file, he's looking for any animal predation in the case, any evidence of it. That's what he and apparently SAR people look for right away, search and rescue. So, yeah, right. So he's got a whole system here. Now, it's interesting to me that he says he doesn't include cases that don't fit his profile because, at least in the first book, I felt like there were some that seemed yes. very obvious to me that they were maybe serial killers or abduction cases of young women that had gone jogging and that sort of thing. It mm -hmm. wasn't an overwhelming majority of it, but the cases felt to me like they may be more aligned with domestic violence yeah. or a serial killer or, or an abduction or something like that as opposed to these other categories. But yeah. the other thing I wonder if he's doing sometimes is if he has data that he can't publish, but that he knows puts the story in the category, whether yes, it's for privacy would, or what, right. some other reasons, you know? Your critics and your supporters are going to say different things. I right. have uh, read that quite a bit as being a criticism of the cases he presents or includes in his criteria that it doesn't seem to fit the criteria that he states. But I would bet that he will say, hey, there's things that you don't know and we can't tell you still, even though I'm I'm publishing, you know, public books or things that uh, don't fit or, like you said, are HIPAA violations or something that he cannot go against. There's some reason maybe he would say that I can't present 
all the information about this. Right. But we're going to get into that discussion because, of course, it just doesn't stop there. There are some other considerations that people have problems with. Yeah. And that brings us to our next section here because we, of course, wanted to take a critical view of some of these cases and look at some of the things that we found ourselves from drilling down on some of them. Um, and this was part of the stuff that we wanted to say for part two. And here we are, it's part two. So now we're doing that. Mm. We mm. want to start out with a couple of things we heard from a few listeners in our Facebook group, our private Facebook group, which is a very active and uh, passionate space where folks are more or less yeah. kind to, <laughs> to one another and to us. <laughs> More or less. <laughs> well, there, but yes, uh, no, there are, for the most part, I would say much more polite to each other, because that's what we care about, much yeah. more polite to each other. And Respectful. Uh, maybe even more mildly insulting if they're going to be towards us. So yes. I'll take that. Well, so there we go. Well, we did hear in the Facebook group from a former Park Service Ranger. I'm going to call him Howard because we were unable to uh, procure his permission to use his name on the show before we recorded this. So we're just going to call him At the time of this recording. So Howard is in our Facebook private group, and he had his own perspective on all this. The other uh, people in the group are going to know who he was because he posted this. He mentions that he's worked six seasons in four parks and points out that they all have mysterious unsolved disappearances. He added that he did not directly participate in search and rescue operations, but he was present while they were going on, and he made it clear that he doesn't represent the National Park Service, nor is he exalting it, and he goes on to say that Politis is not all that revered within the Park Service. So he's not representing the Park Service, but he's also saying, in the broader sense, at least in his experience, that maybe Politis isn't as revered as he might paint mm-hmm. himself to be. But I mean, and I'm just going to say his response, well, I mean, Politis's books are incredibly critical of the Park Service and ha- their methodology when it comes to reporting these cases. So yeah. I would think no matter whether he's being accurate or not, they wouldn't be his number one fan. If you scanned more of a breadth of his work, he is more critical of the administrative actions of the National Park Service and other law enforcement agencies, not so much the boots on the ground, because that's what he was at one point, a law enforcement officer for a long time. And he does have a lot of friends that are park rangers and search and rescue experts, retired law enforcement personnel, FBI agents, and you're going to have to ask him who they are to get a list. But what I will say is that as part of the origin story of this, which is also in that Rick and Bubba podcast, he explains it a little bit. As I mentioned in part one, I wasn't sure how many rangers had come to him privately because that is the origin story of this. And as he tells it, he was out in the park on another project. I'm going to guess maybe a Bigfoot-related one, but he's out in a national park and he's got an escort of some rangers. And, uh, you know, they do their thing for the day. He's poking around, uh, maybe taking footage, whatever he's doing. And they wrap up for the day and he goes back to the hotel and he says a little bit later on, he gets a knock on the door and it's one of the rangers from earlier in the day. And he says, this ranger said, hey, uh, I got to tell you about something that's going on in the national parks, at least from my experience. And he proceeded to tell him about some of these cases or just what this ranger thought was going on. And he thought, well, that's pretty wild. And that guy leaves. And then a little bit later, two other rangers show up. And I don't know if they were together or just two separate other visits, but according to his story, that's multiple visits after this arranged escort earlier in the day with rangers wanting to tell him about something they thought was pretty hinky going on in the parks. And he said, that's what sparked his curiosity. He was like, wait, what's going on here? If I get three separate accounts or 
two accounts where they're uh, corroborating and one other separate earlier account that something's going on and they want me to know about it and, and see what I can do to follow up on it. Maybe there's something here. So I guess that would be the very, uh, the, the seed of the origin story of this whole project was that he claims that he was told by National Park Service Rangers on the QT that he should check into this. Something's up. Something's happening. So circling back around to Howard, the Park Service Ranger that posted in our Facebook group, or ex-Park Service Ranger, he did have some other stronger criticisms about mm-hmm. Politis's approach. Yes. And he pointed out how expensive and resource-heavy search and rescue is, which can explain why searches have a limited timeline. He mentioned one in 2021 that had hundreds of helicopter missions. So you can imagine what the cost is like. However, Howard's overall contention is one that everyone has heard. You can get lost and not be found in the wilderness. And I don't have a strong counterpoint to that because I agree with it in lots of ways. Yeah. And that's why each case has to be looked at individually, in my opinion. And when I say like on a granular level, you got to look at the terrain. What was Mm -hmm. going on there? Because the terrain can vary Mm -hmm. wildly just a mile or two apart. But Howard's vote is for mundane explanations. Nothing supernatural. Just getting that in there. Let's keep going. We had another member in the group who wanted to make sure that we point out that experts are frequently Mm -hmm. killed by things they are the experts in. Sure. Uh, Well, any wildlife (laughs) expert, I mean, sadly, it's, uh, you know, I was a huge fan of Steve Irwin, still am. And it was sad that, uh, well, he was killed by something in the water that, uh, you, you know, we associate him with crocodiles. He was killed by the poison of a stingray. It was just a freak accident, but it can happen. You're in the wild and it's wild out there. You know, that's where yeah. we get the name. So it's totally reasonable to us. At some point, you could be killed by the thing you're studying or are most familiar with. Because as we said before, maybe in part one, as I've seen many an expert on something get a little too casual with something or just the amount of exposure to something dangerous, eventually the numbers are going to turn and be against you and uh, you'll succumb to it. Yeah. And and to be clear, when we mentioned bear expert Bart Schleyer, uh, his mm-hmm. death in part one, we never said he couldn't be killed by a bear. We just said uh, no. it was a lot less likely, which I will stand by. There's right. a functional difference between an <laughs> expert and a novice. That said... An expert pilot had a fatal crash at an air show in Reno three days yeah. before we recorded this. So it, no oh. matter what kind of expert you are, if your expertise is in something dangerous, as Forrest just said, yeah. uh, the statistics are going to catch up with you over time if you keep exposing yourself to danger, no matter how much you know about it. Right. And I will say this about Bart Schleier. The people that were incredulous were the people who knew him best, his friends. Right. Not us. We didn't yeah. know him. We we're only reading the story where they were like, I can't believe this happened to this guy. I mean, he was one of right. the most experienced people. He's that person. If you were stuck in this, lost in this horrible situation, he's the person you want to lead you out. This is not the guy staring at his iPhone with his AirPods in walking into a <laughs> fountain on, you know, TikTok. No. That's not who's out there in the woods. But, you know, hey. That's another thing, regardless of anything weird, that I've seen come up, again, reading all the material, is that uh, the people that were close to them and this is not uh, so much even an assessment by anybody else writing these books or online or Reddit or whatever, that uh, these are their friends saying like, yeah, it was unbelievable. It doesn't make sense to us. They knew everything about the area they were in. They had decades of experience and they still fell to some kind of unknown. And I say that again, not paranormal. The unknown is just unknown at this point. But they are the most surprised that this would happen to uh, this person they know. Right. Anything can happen. So now we're going to look at some other critical viewpoints and analyses 
as they pertain to specifically some of these cases, not just in the first book. Some of these go out to uh, Eastern U.S., the second book, and, and beyond. And we got a tweet from a very nice listener on Twitter. His handle is at FlamesBrian, and he tweeted at us a link. He said we should take a look at it. He said, I think there could be some problem with some of the data in there and some of the research. Take a look at this, and it leads you to, I think, one of the more popular subreddits on here. And again, this is such a big topic. That's why it's a little hard to tame and corral because you'll look at a post and there'll be like 500 comments on it. But one that seemed to be pretty well put together, this one is called Stickied, like a sticky note, right? So it's Stickied, colon, a list of all missing 411 deconstructions, end of the title here. And it looks to be about 54 cases that are profiled in the missing 411 series. And he said, take a look at this. This person who did the post followed up on some of these cases to see if they could find more information and if anything was missing or incorrect. Now, one case that was not in there that I did specifically look for because we were interested in it is that, as we said earlier, Jared Adadero from 1999. And that case wasn't listed. But then again, these were just 54 of the cases. And it's not, as the title may suggest, a list of all missing 411 deconstructions. It's 54, and that's not the end or total of the problematic cases. And also, we're not sure how much further the research could go as a rebuttal to these criticisms. Uh, By the way, Flames Brian, thank you for sending this to us. I had actually just found it shortly before you made us aware of it, because it's hard not to find the Reddit stuff on the missing 411 Mm -hmm. just when you start looking around. That's one of the first places you go, and there's a lot of conversation going on in there, but it's like any other sources of information. You don't know who you're dealing with in terms of the authors. You don't know. That's true. They may not be any better or worse than us who are armchair investigators ourselves, so we have to evaluate the data. Because in theory, Politis has access to data that we don't. I mean, we have some friends in law enforcement, but we don't have as many as he probably does. We don't have as many contacts as he does. Mm -hmm. He may have access to information, like we just said a few minutes ago, that can't be shared, but it colors his overall view of everything. On the other hand, we get these folks posting on uh, subreddits, talking about it, and they're doing research. We did a lot of the same kind of research ourselves to Mm -hmm. the extent that we had time to. Yeah, no, this is a sampling meant to give you an idea of the picture, the overall picture of what's going on. Because again, you know, there's cases that I'm sure we've missed that will blow your mind. We just didn't get to it. Yeah. Right. Just skimming through this list. Again, these are uh, the one page here with a sticky or just clickable links with little brief summaries of what Can-Am says about it. They seem to, in most of these 54 cases at least, uh, about half are people found dead with reported mundane explanations. About the other half are found alive also with mundane or natural explanations. Some are still missing, a few. But for my overall points here with the subject, I think it comes down again to what an individual thinks is mundane or natural causes, and that informs your analysis of this. However, there are facts that you can find where if uh, Politis says this person was never heard from again and they pop up in a newspaper article, well, that could be proof that uh, he stopped there for whatever reason, Politis, and didn't find this article didn't willfully keep going. Who knows? I can't say at this point. And also, we don't know who this user or poster was who posted the subreddit, but another user commented on the little backstory here. Everything Again, this is so contentious. Everything's got a little bit of a backstory. Apparently, this person was known as The Old Unknown. That was their handle on Reddit, and it seems they were compiling case counterpoints to write a book about it. And the sticky poster was, is, also writing a book about these cases. So, Can this information and motives be trusted? 
is he exploiting these cases for monetary gain? No, I, I'm, I'm joking. I kid, yeah. I kid. <laughs> okay. The, the link takes you to a um, stock graphic desktop background. And I think from the comments that I read that that was probably the intention is that he was compiling this information. He got too much trolling and hounding and harassment from the other side of the camp here. And he just deleted his profile, but he left the page up. And the point of that is that there's awfulness on both sides and up the middle and everywhere in between. Is this information any more trustworthy? Well, I would say, following up as much as I could, most of the counterpoints are based on old articles of the time being found after the initial missing person case was posted in the media, and usually it's a newspaper, and he just went on newspapers.com, and he did a search and found other articles that said, this person is still alive, or this person was found. That's exactly what I did, and I did yeah. it before I, I drilled down on this, and before right. I found that link. So that's what, and that's what I want to talk about next. I want to talk about a couple of cases that I looked into here. So to be fair, what it seems this person did, who came up with a list titled "A List of All Missing 411 Deconstructions," which we're going to nickname Stickied, just to remember. Also, it seems did another posting that specifically looks at farmer cases, because that seems to come up quite a bit in the Eastern book, is uh, 12 cases that he found where there was conflicting information. But really, that person, to be clear, and again, something that we didn't do either, this person didn't look at police reports or interview family members, this and that. They basically just, it seems, went on newspapers.com. If you watch Politis in any of his Can-Am videos, you see that he's in a room with bookcases behind him just filled with like three and five inch binders full of cases from all over the North America at the very least and in other places too. It's a lot of data to keep up with and he's probably doing it pretty much alone. So it's easy to be critical about missteps and data not being drilled down on because you have to decide when you're doing a compilation like this, how much time are you able to spend on each individual case? That said, you should get to the facts. You should get, especially if there's some kind of resolution and you're implying that the uh, resolution was different from what was the ultimate outcome. So um, we have uncovered some inconsistencies, just like a lot of people have, in Politis' data collection, some within his own presentation and some as his presentation is compared to independent sources. Now, because we always try to do this, we sought out some corroboration on the details of um, a couple of particular cases in the book and the correlation of their disappearances that Politis is implying. Now, it seemed like a good case study uh, for whatever theory he's suggesting. Now, keep it in mind, he never really puts one forward. He wants the reader to decide. And hey, that's our MO too. You decide as the listener. So we're going to take a look at a few of these uh, specific cases that Politis mentions. One is the uh, Willie Dave Piotote case. This is from 1932. And there's not a lot of details on it. I'm going to come back to it in a minute. But in this case, this little boy was picking berries and he mm. vanished, never to be seen again. And one of the things that comes up about this case is that the berry bushes, which is something that uh, Politis posits at the beginning of the book, that the berry patches yes. seem to be consistent. And that's something a lot of people latch onto. It's like, oh, this is a... This is it's an unusual ridiculous. correlation. Yeah, I it's know. ridiculous to say that this is part of the profile because he says, I think, uh, specifically, he's quoted as saying, berries are inextricably related somehow with the disappearance. Also, I wasn't saying it yeah. was ridiculous because I'm just yeah. trying to present here that a lot of people will point to that and say, how can berries 
in any way be involved. Well, you'd need more statistical information. How much of right. the land in the national park system is berries? How likely right. are you to be near berries just when you walk in a straight line through a park? Statistically, this is very complex because nothing is more of a representation of entropy than unspoiled land. Mm-hmm. And that is when you're getting way off. It's You're going to need quantum computers to calculate right. the different statistical analyses that are correlating to a series of disappearances there that it goes beyond where the pin is in the map, in my opinion. And again, I'm glad we started off with some statistics from the National Park Service because, yes. again, people think like, well, of course, if you're out berry picking, huckleberry picking, and I know this from being in <laughs> huckleberry territory, having grown up in it, uh, yes. Northern Idaho, Glacier Park, all those areas is that, yeah, you're very cautious about it because a grizzly, they also love those and they want to stock up on them before hibernation time because they're they're full of uh, uh, lots of sugar and it'll keep them going. So they are also trying to gorge themselves on delicious huckleberries and you have to be careful. But again, looking at the statistics from the national parks, animal tax are very low. And again, the other thing about animal tax is that they're not very subtle. Right. Usually you will see evidence of blood ripped clothing, claw marks in the dirt or on trees, they make a lot of mess. Yeah. And so usually it's pretty easy, and that's uh, what rangers uh, usually look for first, is that there uh, is there any animal predation, because that's a likely cause. But again, it's not one that's so great that the numbers are skyrocketing as being a cause of people dying or going missing that we know of. Right. All right, so I want to start out with one from uh, 1963. This is the Bobby Pankman case. This case jumped out at me, as it obviously did, Politis. This is the story of a four-year-old boy who vanished in early August of 1963. This took place at Deep Lake in Kettle Falls, Washington State, just south of the Canadian border. Mm-hmm. Now, the Pankton family was from Spokane. They had gone camping and fishing with their three kids, Bobby, Jimmy, and Billy, who were four, six, and ten, respectively. Mrs. Pankton was taking the kids to look at a waterfall, but Bobby was barefoot and in a swimsuit and not equipped to walk the last few steps to the waterfall, described by Politis as just 10 feet away. 10 feet. Now, the ground was rough, so she told Bobby to sit tight and she would take Jimmy and Billy and be right back. According to her, it took two minutes. They came back and Bobby was gone. Now, Politis said there was no chance a car had approached because she would have seen and heard it, and the road was described as impassable for a car anyway. They yelled for Bobby but couldn't find him. Three days after this incident, the sheriff gave Bobby scent to a bloodhound, and it immediately took off, tracking a scent. It ran for two miles to a fork in a logging road where it halted and would go no further. Politis again describes this road as undrivable. 1,000 searchers on foot and horseback searched for a week. Some conjectured that a bear grabbed him, but they brought in bear tracking dogs and they didn't pick anything up. There was no sign of an attack or any blood. Others suggested a giant eagle may have flown off with Bobby, but most search and rescue folks discounted that, according to Politis. Again, remember, Bobby had no shoes on. So again, two minutes he was out of sight, 10 feet away from his mom and brothers. Whatever it was, that was watching him, waited until he was alone, and he vanished without a sound. Now, we go to another case. We're going to come back to that in a minute. The Jimmy Duffy case, 1973. Politis adds that 80 miles southeast from Pankton, another boy named Jimmy Duffy vanished under similar circumstances. And then halfway between those two locations was where Wesley Piotot vanished from, almost exactly 29 years to the day Bobby did. Now, according to Politis, none of the three were ever found. He also reports that two of them were two years old 
and Bobby was four years old. First of all, I just want to say this is the absolute worst thing that can happen to any parent. I can't mm. even begin to imagine the grief and loss. Uh, it gives me a, a pit in my stomach when I think about it, just with my own son, who is like asleep in the next room, hopefully asleep, but with me mm. talking, probably not. All right, so let's take a look at all three of these cases. We looked up the circumstances on James's disappearance. It is also mentioned in Politis's book, but here it is also corroborated from the Research Center for Cold Case Missing Children's Cases. And so this is on the internet as of now. This is the information about Jimmy Duffy. Missing from Leavenworth, Chelan County, Washington. Classification, endangered missing. Date of birth, circa 1970, age two years old. Height and weight, it's heartbreaking. Two feet tall, 16 pounds. Mm. Distinguishing characteristics, Caucasian male, brown hair, brown eyes. James was described as having a very fragile build. His nickname is Jimmy. Clothing and jewelry description, a dark blue long-sleeved turtleneck sweater, a white t-shirt, light blue colored jeans, yellow knee-length socks, and a pair of white training shoes with smooth soles. Details of disappearance. James was last seen in Leavenworth, Washington, on October 19, 1973. He was camping with his parents and younger sister at Peavine Creek on the Little Wenatchee River. James's parents left the campsite to go for a little walk and gather firewood. They were gone for a brief 15 minutes, and when they were 200 yards away from the camper, they heard a scream and rushed back to the site. They found the camper's door to be open, even though it was closed when they left, and James was gone. His sister was still inside the camper and the two cats as well. Extensive searches conducted in the area in the days after his disappearance turned up no trace of the youngster. Investigators stated that if James had wandered away, they would have found him. They don't believe he's anywhere in the area. Over 300 volunteers searched for him, but nothing was ever found. Investigators have stated that foul play has not been ruled out as a possibility in his case, but there's no evidence that he was abducted or killed. His disappearance remains unsolved, and some agencies classify him as lost, injured, missing. And what you just read was from the Resource Center for Cold Missing right. Children's Cases. Okay. So now, according to Politis, Jimmy had been misbehaving, and his mom actually hit him for not keeping up. He was 32 months old, so technically two, but getting closer to three. I only add this because parents understand there's developmental leaps in the short time yeah. between uh, those several months. Politis also adds that Jimmy's sister and the two cats were all still asleep in the camper. It was 2.15 in the afternoon. He said 150 men searched a grid layout and found nothing in the following five days. The sheriff thought the whole thing was made up by the family to cover up something more sinister. Both parents were polygraphed. I'm going to read a section here from Politis' book on that. All right, so this is from page 25 of The Missing 411, Western United States and Canada. Twelve days after their son went missing in the mountains of Washington, James and Carol Duffy were seated in a police interview room taking a polygraph in an effort to clear their names. Polygraph experts from the Seattle Police Department were brought in to question the Duffys and administer the polygraph. Both parents took the polygraph simultaneously in different rooms. In a report written by N. Matsky and D. Gillespie of Seattle PD's polygraph unit, they stated the following after interviewing both parents. Quote, Each subject was given a polygraph examination, and it is the opinion that Mr. and Mrs. Duffy do not know the whereabouts of their son Jimmy, nor did they conspire with each other to cause the disappearance. End quote. The passing of the polygraph hopefully focused the Chelan County Sheriff's Office on finding Jimmy rather than building a case against his parents. Jimmy was also described as frail. Mm-hmm. He was not in great health, I guess. Here's the th other thing about this that you pick up from Politis's book. The scream was heard 150 yards away. 
right. by the parents or 200, depending on your point of view. But it didn't wake up the sister or the cats that were in the camping trailer. Right. So you're saying, how could it be possible that a child would scream in the camper and the sister and the cats, nobody seemed to wake up from that? Right. When they got back, they were all asleep, according to the parents, at least according to Politus's version of it that he talks about in the book. Right. Well, uh, I don't know. As a parent... Uh, <laughs> As you know, very small children can sleep through quite a bit. If the child was always screaming during the night or having night terrors or whatever, that usually goes on quite a bit. You would think they would wake up, but they come back and everyone's still asleep. Cats are not disturbed. They're still asleep. He's just gone. Right. There's also the fact that Politis says he thinks there's a 99% chance that Jimmy was abducted. And he mm -hmm. says there's no mention of animal tracks. Mm -hmm. The case, it seems to mostly stand up. There's not a lot of additional information on it. Jimmy is still listed to this day as missing. But importantly, investigators say foul play had not been ruled out. That stuck out to mm -hmm. me a little bit. Right. The case seems a bit fishy. Now, I know both parents passed a polygraph. That's an imprecise science, as people are fond of telling us. Yes, we know yep. that too. It definitely was more imprecise in 1973. But that case is clearly at a dead end. And on the surface, it seems to line up with what Politis says about it. It's particularly bizarre. So that's Jimmy Duffy, vanished from a family trailer while the family was close by with a sister and two cats in the trailer not even waking up in spite of the parents hearing a scream from 150 yards away. Then there's Bobby Pankman, vanished while waiting mm -hmm. 10 feet away for two minutes for his mom and two siblings to look at a waterfall. Then there's the case of Wesley Pieto. Politis does not go into great detail on this one in the Missing 411 mm -hmm. Western U.S. and Canada, right. other than to say that he and his mom were picking huckleberries when they got separated, and then she hears Wesley scream two times before he disappears. Politis states later in the book that there's more on this case in the Missing 411 Eastern U.S. and Canada. Mm -hmm. This disappearance took place August 4th, 1932. Wesley Piotot, according to Politis, is never found. Yeah, it's strange about the scream and no one waking up. And then, I don't know, just flashed to my mind the Velisca case where yeah. horribly people, uh, the children were being attacked and the parents never woke up. And you think like, how come nobody ever, nobody in the whole house woke up? Yeah, yeah. I can't remember who was attacked first, but I think it was uh, kids downstairs at least in that case, you would think that the parents would wake up. As you know, as a parent, uh, perhaps you're a little more finely tuned to the safety of your children. Right. No, absolutely. And this is the strangest thing. Sometimes you hear the kid call mm. for you, and then you go, yeah. and they're in trouble, but they didn't ever call. Oh, yeah. yeah. Yes. Yeah, that happens. <laughs> That's it's happened point. to me and my wife. So Really? Yeah. Hello everyone, I'm Carol Reel, and this is Astonishing Legends. Let's get back to the show. All right, so here's what I want to do. I want to look at some of the things that we found when we drilled down a little bit deeper on this. Now, in the first chapter where he mentions them, uh, Politis says that Wesley Piotot and Jimmy Duffy were two years old and Bobby Pankman was four. So you have this common ground. Remember that about these ages. Those ages suggest that they had all been similar targets, possibly, even though there was decades between Bobby and Piotot's disappearances, saying they were nearly 29 years to the day apart. Now, they were also in the region of Washington State, but not the exact same area. However, the area may be big enough to suggest either the territory of a serial abductor, be it human or some other unknown animal. Mm -hmm. 
There are some minor differences between Politis's reporting and contemporaneous articles dug up by our researchers in the ARC. I want to give a uh, special thanks to Dave Gibson and Jen Rafferty mm-hmm. for yes. running these down. When you read them in the timeline, you see observations and facts unfold. One thing we can tell you for sure from our experience is that the closer news reporting is to an actual event, the more likely it is to be inaccurate. This is because, obviously, breaking news gets more attention, which increases ad revenue for newspapers and TV. But when you rush to cover something because it's breaking, you're also not getting time to fact check and a lot more speculation comes into play. Over time, the reporting becomes more accurate. Now, I would theorize that a lot of newspaper editors are more interested in getting the scoop than the data at the outset. And then once they've hooked you, they know you'll be back for the follow-ups, which will be more accurate because there's more time to corroborate and fact check. So here's the first article associated with Bobby Pankton. It's from August 5th, two days after he vanished, and it's titled, Lost on Outings, Missing Tots Are Hunted. And it was published in the Spokane Chronicle. Now, what's fascinating about this article is that it also mentions two other missing kids at the exact same time, neither of which are mentioned in the missing 411 Western United States. That's a little crazy that Politis doesn't point that out, but maybe they, he felt like they were outside his parameters. We'll come back to that here in a minute. So here is uh, this particular article I, that I wanted to share with you. It's from August 5th, 1963. Missing tots are hunted. Two Inland Empire youngsters are missing and the objects of full-scale searches today. Sought north of Colville, Washington, is barefooted Bobby Pankton. Four and a half, shows his age here, son of Mr. and Mrs. Howard O. Pankton of N6116G, Spokane, who disappeared on a family camping trip in the Deep Lake area. Missing along the Clearwater River about 15 miles east of Lewiston, Idaho, is Carrie Noble, three, daughter of Mr. and Mrs. Ronald Noble of the Lewiston Orchards. The nobles were at a beach near Arrow Junction when the child disappeared. Both searches included land and water parties, while the Nez Perce County Sheriff's Office today added an aerial patrol to its efforts along the Clearwater. Also missing was one of the members of yesterday's search party near Deep Lake, 15-year-old Michael O'Keefe, according to Carl Funk of Funk's Resort at the lake. He said searchers feel the youth, unless he is injured, will find his way back because he is a big boy who has lived here all his life. Route Surprises A bloodhound, handled by owner Clyde Creek of Deer Park yesterday, twice led searchers for the Pankton boy four and a half miles up a rocky road, which is so bad, Stevens County Sheriff Albert Dutch Holter said he was astounded a boy could walk it barefooted. The child was wearing only blue swimming trunks when he became separated from his mother and two brothers in mid-afternoon. Holter said both times the bloodhound lost the trail at the same place, indicating the boy turned back, which confused the scent. The sheriff said the boy's father and a brother, Ted, 12, were fishing on Deep Lake, and Bobby had accompanied his mother and brothers, Bill, 10, and Jim, 6, to see a waterfall. Holter said the mother and older boys left Bobby on the road, quote, because he didn't want to see the waterfall, end quote, while they went to a viewpoint 35 feet away. When they came back through trees and brush, he was gone. Many persons on outings in the area and residents joined search parties, bringing to 400 an estimate of the total number who searched for Bobby yesterday. The largest organized party had 72 members led by Holter. Divers of the Stevens County Scuba Patrol of Colville searched Deep Lake. Searchers also are looking carefully along Current Creek. Spotlight equipment was used along Gibbs Beach of the Clearwater River in an effort to locate Carrie Noble, also a Nez Perce 
County Sheriff's Boat and Skin Divers. Merrill Hartley and Leo Klein of Clarkston and Manuel Toddhunter of Lewiston searched the river until midnight. A child was reported missing shortly before dark. Deputy Basil Williams, aided by Deputy Bill Miller, headed searchers by boat and land today while Deputy Abe Fry and members of a county air posse flew over the stream. So then there's some more information on Carrie Noble there. So coming back from that article, this is fascinating to me for a couple of reasons. This does confirm some unusual facts that Pilates mentioned about Bobby. Does yeah. confirm it. The dogs went four and a half miles up a rocky road to a dead end. The sheriff couldn't believe the boy walked it barefoot. Sheriff Halter also said the dead end on the scent just means Bobby turned back. But if he turned back, where is he? Why didn't they see him? Right. So my question is, could he have not been carried by a predator or abductor this distance? And right. so I know it's possible the scent would still go along. I watched a special on bloodhounds. I've mentioned it on the show before a couple <laughs> of years ago where a bad guy like got in a car and went down the freeway with the windows up in the car and got off in an yeah. off ramp. The bloodhound got in another car like 15 minutes later and told the handler like which off ramp to take. I mean, he wasn't driving. No, he was. Well, actually he was, that was the most amazing thing. The, well, no. he, oh, he was, he was a uh, navigator. <laughs> yeah, but though, he was right? telling no, tell him where to go. They go back, yeah. take the off ramp. I mean, it's unbelievable. It is amazing what they can pick up, especially a uh, scent under the ground. Yeah. It's something like what, six inches under the ground that's been there for a year or more. I, it's just, yeah. So when Politis says the dog can't track the scent or refuses to track the scent, that's a legit right. piece of information. As long as, you know, it's coming from a legitimate yeah. source, that's a big deal, right. regardless of how mundane you think something is or isn't, for a dog to have the scent and then stop having the scent, mm -hmm. barring like at a water's edge. I feel a little different about right. that. You know, if somebody falls in the water and it's rushing water or that sort of thing, you can, yeah. it can make sense to be lost there. But on dry ground, it's very odd. Here's another thing, though, that's a contrary point. In the article, the waterfall was 35 feet away, not 10 feet, which actually to me made a little more sense even though it's a little less sensational. Also, Politis said uh -huh. 1,000 people were looking for Bobby, but the article says it was 400. It's not a huge deal, but it still it takes yeah. a little bit of the wow factor out of the story. So these folks are saying, oh, Politis is adjusting these facts to make the stories more compelling for his viewpoint. It's a valid viewpoint and valid consideration. Like you said, it zhuzhes it a little bit. But not a whole lot. Right. I mean, that does make it a little more with a wow factor, right. I would say, because... It's a third of the distance here, 35 feet away. Measure that out. It's not that far away. Right. If you were in some brush and you might have the noise of the waterfall, depending on how, yeah, that's uh, a good point. how loud that is. Yeah. You might have the noise of a rushing creek, depending on the time of year, how, how much noise that is. Right. If your kid gets snatched and it's not the uh, classic movie thing where you've got the chloroform rag over the kid's mouth and they, you know, it's muffled. If they... Something grabs them like an animal or even a person grabs them. I would guess the kid's going to scream. And at that distance, 35 feet away, unless it's, again, really noisy waterfall. Yeah. The other kids and the mom are going to hear that. Right. And it doesn't matter. You know, it's not a big deal if it's 10 feet or 35 feet away. Does 35 feet as a, uh, does that really dampen the story? I don't know. And I don't know why that discrepancy is there. You could say, again, I think it perhaps might be valid to say well, the numbers are fudge because it does make it sound a little more exciting. The number between 1,000 people and 400, 400 is still a lot of people. Right. But again, you can cover a lot more ground with 1,000. Right. And if you say 1,000 people went looking, it's like, wow, that's even more difficult. And you think he, uh, better chances of finding this kid. Right. 
but I don't know why. I have not come across any evidence, let's say, uh, why the numbers are differing other than the obvious here. And now, but here's the interesting thing about this. At the exact same time, we've got two other missing kids, neither of whom are mentioned in Politis's book, but both of whom are right here in this article about Bobby that even a cursory search can find. Now, and the one little girl, mm-hmm. Carrie Noble, was three. She vanished under similar circumstances by Politis standards, at least it seemed to me. And we did some further digging. We found out that Carrie was declared dead and a service was held for her on Tuesday, August 6th, just three days after she disappeared. That is a short search window. Now, Carrie was on the Nez Perce Reservation when she went missing, and this was about 400 miles east of Deep Lake where Bobby disappeared. But she also disappeared Mm -hmm. the day after Bobby, August 4th. Here's the article about her. Hope wanes for missing Idaho girl. Lewiston, Idaho. No trace has been found of a little girl who wandered away from her family during a beach party at Arrow Beach, about nine miles east of Lewiston, Sunday evening. Carrie Noble, three, daughter of a Mr. and Mrs. Ronald Noble, Lewiston Orchards, is presumed drowned in the Clearwater River. She was discovered missing at about 9.30 Sunday evening. She evidently wandered away to the river during the party. That's clearly conjecture, even by this article here. Skin divers and Nez Mm -hmm. Perce County Sheriff's Posse members, assisted by local persons, searched until midnight Sunday and again Monday. So it says right there in that article, she's presumed drowned. Uh, We didn't find any articles that indicated her body was ever found. So the drowning is a presumption. And it might be reasonable to say the family was on a beach at the river, but there are numerous cases in Politis' book where the families are by rivers and even articles of clothing are found near the rivers. But he discounts drowning as a likelihood because no bodies are ever discovered. So mm-hmm. we're wondering if that in itself is a leap, especially with such a small child. Carrie Noble's case seems to fit a criteria that Paulitis would mark, right? You know, as falling into the category of unexplained, based on the other criteria in missing four one one Western U.S. Now she was with mm-hmm. family; they looked away. She was gone; no trace ever found. Declared dead from drowning three days later, without evidence. Not a defense of anything, but keep in mind, a lot of times facts and figures in these newspaper accounts yeah. are wrong. How many times have we come across that where? It wasn't exactly the right day. They didn't talk to the right person. Spellings of names are wrong. They said somebody did something when it actually wasn't them. It was was somebody else. And again, that's not a defense in here, but like that's why I'm saying this topic is so murky and nebulous that it's really hard. Uh, You would have to really cross-check it, and you would really want to talk to the people that were there, the family, because I would say, you know, if you can't trust them... Certainly, sometimes there's some funny business going on, and they may not give you the right uh, answers, but who else are you going to trust, really? So it's them, and that's why a lot of times you'll see law enforcement not wanting to talk to reporters, because they know they're going to skew it in a way that they don't care to have skewed, or release something that is going to hinder the the investigation. So, uh, you know, it's all problematic in a sense. But we had a line, let's say to a detective that had worked on a, let's say, a famous case here in L.A. and through a listener. And he said, hey, I may have a line on this. And turns out they didn't want to talk to us because, like, I don't know what you, what is a podcast? What are you, radio on the internet? I don't care. I don't like to talk to media because they've screwed me in the past. So no thanks. And there you go. That's reasonable. So coming back to that article, it also mentioned a member of the search party, 15-year-old Michael O'Keefe. There's not a single other mention of him that we could find, so we're presuming he likely turned up, but we don't know. In which case, if Politis 
hadn't read this exact article, he wouldn't have even known about O'Keefe. So that would explain leaving him out. Carrie Noble, maybe less so. If he truly vanished that day, his disappearance is lost to time at the moment, which seems unlikely. Now, let's look at this article from August 8th, five days after Bobby disappeared, specifically this section about the search dogs and also the number of searchers. Now, remember, Politis wrote that the scent trail ran cold at a fork in the road. Now, that's one of those wow facts that gets your imagination running wild. Now, we just saw in that other article about how the trail did stop for the dogs, but there's no mention of a fork. And the sheriff said it likely just meant that Bobby doubled back. Right. Here's this article from a few days later. Searchers failed to locate boy. This is from the Spokesman Review, August 8th, 1963. Deep Lake Resort, Washington. A pair of trained search dogs failed to find any clue that would help solve the fast-deepening mystery of the disappearance of a four-year-old Spokane lad. The dogs, one from Canada and the other from Seattle, spent most of Wednesday sniffing through the rugged mountain area near this small lake. The lad, Bobby Pankton, son of Mr. and Mrs. Howard O. Pankton, vanished Saturday afternoon when his mother left him momentarily on a trail. Hundreds of searchers have been scouring the woods without result ever since. Caesar, a bloodhound sent from Seattle, has been searching for the last two days, but the boy's trail is apparently too cold. At one point, it was believed the bloodhound was on a hot scent, but a shoulder-to-shoulder search of the area by 20 persons, including the boy's father, resulted in another failure. The second dog, a German shepherd from Canada, has searched for missing persons in the deep North Canadian woods. Late Wednesday afternoon, distinct bear tracks were seen on the bank above the spot where little Bobby was last seen. The tracks, coupled with earlier signs of cougars and bears in the immediate area, prompted Stevens County Sheriff A.E. Holter to put out a call for dogs trained to hunt wild animals and for men with horses. Caesar was flown back to Seattle late Wednesday, and the German Shepherd was working into the night where the bloodhounds left off. Ron Wefflin, the bloodhounds handler, said, The items of clothing we were given had all been handled by other members of the family, all of whom had been in the search area at one time or another. There was only a handful of persons involved in the search Wednesday compared to Tuesday. Sheriff Holter had asked volunteers to stay out of the area while the dogs worked. And then here's a subheading says, Mass Hunt Ruled Out. The sheriff said it is unlikely there will be more mass organized hunting for the youngster. Pankton, a retired Air Force Master Sergeant who moved to Spokane a year ago, was prepared to take his wife, Edna, and three other sons back home today. However, Pankton said, My wife just seems to want to stay here until something turns up. I've got to take her home sometime. The Pankton's eldest son, Theodore, 12, was with his father fishing in an outlet creek below Deep Lake at the time Bobby disappeared. With Bobby's mother on a hike above the lake were his two older brothers, Billy, 10, and James, 6. Pankton returned from an overseas assignment in Turkey on June 28th. This was their second camping trip this year, but Pankton said, quote, we normally made a camping trip every other weekend, end quote. The boy's father had served 20 years in the military, first with the Army and then the Air Force. It has been estimated there may have been as many as a 1,000 people in the area, including curiosity seekers and bystanders. However, the most involved in mass searching at any one time is said to be, by Sheriff Holter, to have not exceeded 450. These included loggers who lived in the area, National Guard units from nearby cities, Marine Corps volunteers, Forest Service personnel from Spruce Canyon, and at one point, Canadians who had been attending stock car races at nearby Northport. Sheriff Holter was especially complimentary of the Canadian group and was full of praise for the cooperation his office received from the neighborhood and nearby town. He said, quote, I could not have asked for anything more. They've done everything humanly possible, but obviously we're overlooking something, end quote. So 
Here, the sheriff posts a pretty reasonable theory about the scent being lost when he points out the entire family handled the clothing that they were trying to get the dogs to track. Again, Politis also said a thousand people participated in the search and nothing was found. But according to this article, there was an estimate of Mm -hmm. a thousand curiosity seekers and bystanders total, but maybe 450 searchers. It's a minor detail, right? but it still pulls at the idea of the sensational details behind the case. Yeah, perhaps. Mm -hmm. In this article from August 12th, Sheriff Dutch Halter, again, same sheriff, seems to say there's a very slim chance Bobby was abducted. This supports Politis' POV that he was not taken from the area by someone because the opportunity was limited. The formal search for Bobby, who disappeared Saturday, August 3rd, ended last night when 300 volunteer searchers once again combed a vast area radiating from the point where the Spokane boy disappeared and once again found nothing. Sheriff Holter said his office will continue looking for Bobby, who was barefooted and wearing only a swimsuit when he disappeared, but only on a limited basis. Volunteers are welcome to come and search, he said, but his office is no longer issuing calls for them. Meanwhile, on the one slim chance that Bobby was abducted by a well-meaning but disturbed hiker, posters are being prepared, Hmm. using the voice picture for distribution throughout the American and Canadian Pacific Northwest. And then on uh, August 13th, 10 days after Bobby vanished, the following was reported. Hundreds of searchers combed hills, creeks, log jams, and brush tangles for the boy during a week of intensified search efforts guided by Sheriff A.E. Dutch Holter. Sunday night, the hunt was called off after 300 volunteers revisited the boy's last known location early in the day for that one last chance that his body might be found. So again, here's another minor detail. It's 300 Mm -hmm. versus 1,000. We're just looking at one source there. Just again, coming back to it, like Forrest said, the figures are all over the place. The information's all over the place. It's hard to know what to cite. But these quotes on the figures are coming from the local law enforcement, though. So you would think that they would be pretty accurate. And mentioned in multiple articles, it seems to stay around 300 to 450 in in the search for Bobby. Now we get to Wesley Piatot. This is our third child disappearance we're taking a closer look at, as described by Politis. There's a couple of errors relating to Wesley Piatot's disappearance, at least from the Western U.S. and Canada edition of Politis' book. The first time Politis mentions Wesley, he says that he was two years old the exact same age as Jimmy Duffy. So you think, wow, is that an important data point? Wesley was two, Jimmy was two, Bobby Pankton was four, except that Wesley wasn't two. He was seven when he disappeared. Mm -hmm. Now, it's a big difference from a child developmental standpoint. And I'm saying that in reference to what kind of behavior you might expect from a missing two-year-old versus a missing seven-year-old. And, yeah, uh, obviously. Yeah, and I, di- I did get my copy of Robert Coaster's Lost Person Behavior book, by the way, but mm-hmm. I, I haven't looked up the difference in these. A, uh, the book is in the Astonishing Library. <laughs> I'll circle back on that. But Politis corrects the age later in his book, in the very same book, when he's summing up Piotot's disappearance. He doesn't indicate that it's a correction. He just properly lists him at being seven years old. It's an understandable error that is more on his editor than him, if he had one for his books. Mm-hmm. It should have been caught during the edit pass on the manuscript. He's dealing, again, with hundreds of cases here, so we're not saying this is some kind of egregious oversight. It's just a note. I'm only, po- right. I'm only pointing it out because it seems like Politis is leaning on the age similarities in this particular grouping of these three boys. And it's not just ages. It, it can be other factors that, right. that people are, are ready to point out, and, and, it, and you do wonder about them. And now there is another larger oversight, though. Piotote turned up alive and well, in spite of being reported by Politis as having never been seen again. So that's a pretty big no. deal. Yeah. We're looking into this <laughs> yeah. case. We found a posting, again, on the Missing 411 discussion subreddit from about nine months ago. This is a post that we just made reference to before we started this section earlier. This particular user was trying to dissect any inaccuracies in Politis' cases, and this post was called the Strange 1932 Willie Dave Piatote Case and some other strange Huckleberry cases that are strange. 
Hmm. Uh, we have a link to it in the show notes. Now, it's a well-thought-out post. Aside from the fact that it gets Wesley's name wrong, right. it says Willie Dave Piatote. That was actually Wesley's dad. Again, not to point fingers, but it's very easy to conflate and get facts wrong. Right. On every turn, and it just uh, it goes to muddy everything. If you're trying to like make a a very detailed narrative, you could be dealing with bad information from a bunch of different sources. Yeah, and and I think the Reddit user probably made the error because almost all the newspaper articles that he found, and I found a bunch of them too, made that same yeah. error. They just accidentally yeah, exactly. they listed Wesley's dad Willie as the missing person, which again, like Forrest just said, shows how easy it is to stumble. The one thing that this uh, Reddit post did point out was that Wesley was found, even if the article about yes. him being found had his name wrong. And it's right. just a tiny little blurb. Just said, uh, Nespolem, this is from uh, August 8th, 1932, the Bellingham Herald. Nespolem, Willie Dave Piatote, a seven-year-old Indian boy, was found safe after a three-day search in the wilds of Strawberry Mountain, where he had been lost while his family were picking huckleberries. He said he was awful thirsty. So that one at least is a happy ending. Yes. Or if you want to get uh, very, uh, like I said, uh, not making a joke because of thank goodness he was found, but uh, if you want to get real out there and woo-woo, yeah. you know, people go to the other end of the spectrum and, and say, uh, could there be Faye involvement? Or, right. I mean, what's, what, what's interesting is that there's people in the most critical threads about this subject saying like, hey, I have a problem with how politis researches these things and presents the information and his motives and this and that but don't discount that i also believe in alternate realities and universes and time portals right and how and that might be a possibility you know like right. it runs the gamut here of just every th belief from absolutely not all baloney to everything about this is true as you said at the beginning and then some people are like yes on 90 percent of this except for the 10 percent where I might say there's a supernatural cause. And what I was getting at is that if you want to get real uh, out there, let's say, out for you, is this a changeling? Yeah. Is this the same child that was returned? Because that's also part of the uh, fae and fairy lore is that a child has taken the stolen child to the waters in the wild with a fairy hand in hand. And what comes back, though, is not them. Oh, yeah. That's what the changeling is. So let's talk about that. Wesley Piatote actually grew up to be 62 years old, died on June 22nd of 1988. Mm -hmm. He fought in the Navy in World War II as a gunner's mate third class on board the USS Ocanto, which was a Haskell-class attack transport that transported troops to and from combat areas. So just given Wesley his rightful yeah. place in history there, if he was replaced, <laughs> he was replaced by a very brave individual. He, yeah, I came back, uh, whoever came back was a hero and grew up to have a very worthwhile life. Yeah. Thank goodness, because... You just want some of these stories to have a happy ending. Yeah, and some of them do, and some of them seem to have been overlooked. So why go so right. deep on these three cases? That's because they're possibly a microcosm of all the data gathered by Politis, at least in this book. But gathering all this data, especially when there's nowhere to go for 95% of it, is an impossibly complex task. You couldn't fairly expect it to be without errors. That said, there's some things to point out here, just as it relates to these three cases anyway. First, the initially the stated age of one of the victims was wrong, which made it seem like right. there was a similarity that was there that maybe wasn't so similar. Uh, secondly, the geographic component of the three cases seems plausibly interconnected, but the chronology of them almost seems like an arbitrary assessment of causation, at least to me. Mm -hmm. Thirdly, when you add in the details from the local reporting, like in the Bobby Plankton case, and we're talking about from multiple articles over several days, it seems like some of the more mysterious details might not really be there. 
Right. That said, he also still hasn't turned up. So, I mean, that's a legit... Mm-hmm. Freaky disappearance. He was very close by. Right. Fourth, I would say the Jimmy Duffy case. That's one of the strangest ones. The scream and vanishing from the trailer. Yeah. I know the parents passed a polygraph on that, but for anyone who's watched even a few episodes of 2020 or Dateline <laughs> on Missing Kids, that story is straight up fishy. And even the authorities to this day are not ruling out foul play, in quotes. Perhaps he was kidnapped. I can't imagine sleeping cats wouldn't wake up if a cryptid came into the trailer. Unless, of course, we're talking super high strangeness paranormal event here. Well, opening... Flash closing of a portal and a, somebody getting snatched to either side. Again, not to make light of that, but again, people, uh, we just heard a story uh, that was posted by George Knapp about somebody who out near uh, Groom Lake, Papoose Lake, yeah. uh, a geologist saw another portal out there, out in the middle of uh, the flat open desert. So again, that's not to say what's happening here or to make light of anything. It's just that it's just such a weird, wild realm of purported possibilities here. But if you just say, look, let's just focus first on the mundane and ordinary, which is people behaving awfully and there is some foul play. It goes back to one of the examples of, I believe in the first documentary where there is a sketchy person that's grandpa's friend that they hadn't met before and he shows up to go camping with them. And then suddenly a child goes missing. Yeah. And I think very fairly, again, that's a it's a pretty worthwhile consideration just yeah. from a, a crime standpoint and you don't find anything. And then of course people are saying like, well, they all seem sketchy, that old family. We don't even know if that child actually went on the camping trip. Right. Which is what I was wondering about Jimmy Duffy specifically. Did right. he even yeah. go on the trip? But the parents passed the polygraph, but I don't know, well, you know, polygraphs yeah. and imprecise science and the older it is, the more imprecise it was. They work and they're 100% effective when you get the answer you want yeah. or were suspecting. Yeah. And they're not when you don't. Yeah. And then there's bizarre natural stuff happens. I mean, after all, the dingoes really did steal Lindy Chamberlain's baby on August 16th, 1980 oh, yeah. in Australia. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That was a punchline around the world, but everyone had to apologize when it turned out to be what actually happened. And Lindy Chamberlain yeah. went to jail for three years on that. Because everyone thought dingoes Mm. were cute. But looking back on the case, all of this evidence pointed to her telling the truth. So I'm not saying something crazy didn't happen to Jimmy Duffy, but it does feel a little bit off. Uh, But even if it isn't, in some ways, it's the only case to hang Mm -hmm. a hat on of these three, in my opinion. Because then we've got Wesley Pieto, picking berries, two screams, vanishes. Sounds pretty spooky and unusual, except he was found three days later and he lived to be 62. Now, Mm -hmm. I can imagine that uh, Politis might not have been able to find that he survived maybe because all the newspaper articles wrongly referenced Willie D. Piotote rather than Wesley. True. But it really wasn't all that difficult for us to figure it out. So all of this stuff put together, I feel like for me, it's what I found on a lot of the cases that I took a deeper look at personally. I found that there were some information that wasn't there, but there's something that we have to be super fair about here. And this is something to think about Mm -hmm. that comes up as you look at this and you look at the people that are critical of Politis, folks that aren't and uh, people on both sides of the line. And that's that we're referring to a 10 plus year old book right here. And there's probably been a lot more information that's come online about these cases since he published the book, probably as a direct result of him publishing the book, because he's bringing them to the forefront of of people's minds. Well, that's, uh, I wanted to point out the reason, and maybe the only reason, anyone is talking about these cases in bulk, and in this breadth and depth, is because he published these books. That's right. He's bringing back the attention to these missing folks. And I think that 
something else to consider, and I know this because you and I, we've been doing this uh, for eight years now, and we've been visiting newspapers.com pretty much that entire time. We've had an account there a long time. Yep. And I can tell you as a longstanding member of newspapers.com, and there's another one that we used to have a membership to, because there's a couple now. My point is that all along the way, you get frequent emails about how an entire new paper has just been added to the database. Yeah. And so- it's not like those pages where you, you know, armchair skeptics and more official skeptics who are looking at these cases mm-hmm. are like, well, I found this and I found that. And even I just said this a few minutes ago. Look what I found. I found right. that Wesley Piotot's name was wrong or this little blurb that said he was alive. He was found alive three days later and awful thirsty. Right. That might not have been available online or very easy to find at all when this book was written. And I think that's something really important to remember because it's easy to come at something 10 years later with all the 10 years of extra knowledge, especially Mm -hmm. in the digital world, and be like, how could he not see this and not see that? I just found it on Google. You have to remember about the time and place that this work was put together. Right. On the other hand, it does seem like some basic things have been overlooked. So I'm just looking, trying to look at the big picture here. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I know there's the whole thing about both sidesism, you know, and we're gay. Oh, well, you're, which, so which is it? Pick a side. I can't pick a side yet because I'm not really sure. I think it's a case-by-case mm-hmm. basis. I just want people to look at the big picture. And I think for me, at this moment anyway, my takeaway is to take all of these things with a grain of salt. Did you already just do your conclusion section? It's more or less. My conclusions are spread all throughout this series. They're kind okay. of in the middle of it. There's not going to uh, be a lot to say at the end because I think in a way your closing the work arguments. we've done speaks for itself. Yeah, it's intertwined. Okay, then. Well, look, people might be quick to say both sides-isms or some ism. Yes. Yes. I think it's okay and fair to try to be fair to the subject and the data and the, and the points. And, and this is not so much the personalities involved. I guess you can, you can say, but I'm going to make a statement at the end where I think that's more closely tied to intention. In this case here, it didn't make sense to me why some things are missing. So you have to understand, again, taking a look at this, uh, the two Reddit articles, I think, which are seem to have a lot more research to them, which is the one titled Stickied, a list of all missing 411 deconstructions that somebody uh, had pointed us to on uh, Twitter and elsewhere. Um, By the way, yes, we know what Stickied means. We know it's not just this one post. It's any post that has is considered to have information (laughs) that everyone should see about the topic or the subreddit. So we understand that, but that's what we're calling it here. So yeah, because Scott and I have had to refer to each other, or uh, which list are you talking about? What page are you talking about? Yes. Uh, the stickied one, right? And because uh, the the the, the t- there's no real, I guess, sexy book title of this. It's just a list of missing four one one deconstructions. It's like, could you be more specific? What list? It seems like a, a work half finished. That's what I'm saying. And and sadly, it would be the case if that guy was chased off of Reddit because of the trolls. And like I said, there's trolls uh, all on both sides and all the way up the middle. In this case, though, just taking a look at what he'd done, well, it's also fair to say that of the 54 cases covered, really what they are is just that this person did some extra research and found other additional newspaper clippings of the time that seemed to either shed more light and more details or refute where Politis had left off with it, right. okay, in the one book. Right. Now, to be fair, what we're saying is that that book coming out in 2011, 2012, probably having research in it that was from the, the two or three years prior, as we stated earlier, when he started researching this stuff, is being commented on by somebody doing additional research 10 years later. Right. 
and providing an article which may or may not have been available to Politis at the time, because there are some passages where we we stated, uh, I'm not sure if we covered this or not, where he would say, I tried to do some additional research. I could find no other articles to clarify the outcome and fate of this person. Right. And there's a lot of questions as to, you know, are there ways that you can die from an unnatural cause that leaves no trace of evidence with your body? And so that's right. another consideration. And the other thing I would say too, like to get beyond like newspaper articles and other sources, another uh, useful tool is to look into uh, mm-hmm. genealogy. Uh, that's how I was able yeah. to determine that the young Piotot was listed as his dad's name. So you can just take a look, those extra steps, go as far as you can go when you're mm-hmm. looking into this stuff. One of these cases where you get this example of a timeline being unfair to Mr. Politis and the work that he's done is the case of Tata Morell. And Tata Morell disappeared in July of 2021. And a few days after her disappearance, he made a video on the Can-Am Missing website. Right. She went missing on July 2nd, 2021. Uh, the Can-Am Project video containing the case of Tata Morell was released on July 11th or published to the YouTube channel on July 11th, 2021. The Reddit post critiquing the Can-Am video, was submitted on the 23rd of August, 2021, so a bit afterwards. So here's the thing about that. That Reddit post was posted in reaction to her being found, and it's being critical of a video that Politis made weeks earlier, which I don't know how you could expect him to understand that she was going to be found in the future. It doesn't make sense. And so well, now you're, yeah. you're deconstructing <laughs> and, I, I guess, conducting a character assassination of Politis based on something he could not have known at the time. Right. There's a lot of that going on, which is what we're saying about whether it's the newspaper timelines or the availability of data for Mr. Politis. I'm not saying that there's not holes in the presentation for me personally. Oh, yes, there are. In terms of the data that's presented. Mm -hmm. But on the other hand, I'm also saying on the other side, the folks that are attacking it aren't doing much better of a job attacking it than he is presenting it in the first place. The standards are, are... maybe not where I would have them on either side of the equation. That's kind of my point. On either side, all over the case, there are holes. And also there's a tone, there's a bias, there's a point of view, even with the counterpoints, because in that questioning on the page, the Redditor says, quote, how reliable is the missing 411 framework when a female hiker who dies in a rock slide is labeled missing 411? Now, that's a valid question on some other cases. I don't think it's valid right here. And then he goes on to say, should DP apologize for using Tata Morell as missing 411 fodder? And this is my detective bit here, is that uh, they, the Redditor spelled apologize with an S instead of a Z. So I think they're from the UK and seems to be the same person who posted the missing farmer phenomenon that is tied to the more Eastern Politis book. So I think it's the same person. Again, I'm not disqualifying their work. It's just that it's also not that tight and buttoned up in that they're finding these things, but it's like you're then you're jumping and you're, you're inferring that you should toss it all out or questioning all of it. And some of it should be questioned. Should all of it could be questioned is the question to me. Well, yeah. And, and Reddit as an investigative force doesn't have the best track record in history. No, it's kind of an officer Reddit, uh, as I say, scenario where it's a lot of armchair uh, online sleuths. And sometimes that works. And then sometimes it's just people with opinions. Famously, look up the Boston bomber and Reddit if you mm. want to know more about how sideways that can get. So right, right. there's things about that to understand is that the presentation of data and who is collecting the data and how it's 
what's being collected have to be considered in every instance. Right. And Politis theoretically has access to police records. He submitted FOIA requests, which we know to be true. He did that extra work. Now, the question is, did he intentionally leave things out that might right. have colored the presentation? That's a different argument from the question of, oh, well, look what I figured out on Google or look what mm -hmm. I figured out by doing X, Y, and Z. Because, you know, it's the same. Even when we cite a website, anyone could have written that website just like anyone could write a Wikipedia page. Well, <laughs> funny you mention that, my friend. Yeah. Some of these cases, to be totally fair and uh, present all the information, because my whole thing, my personal motto is observe everything as much as you can and present everything and consider everything. It's just that some considerations have more weight for me, more relevance, and some do not. They're a very minor consideration, but I want to know the information Anyway, as we continue to the conclusion of the skeptical viewpoint on this entire subject, I just want to say there are many cases that I've seen where Politis and the Can-Am project people will post an update on a case if they've gotten more information. And that's easy to do on a YouTube channel. You just get the camera out, you make a presentation. And sometimes people have pointed out, well, the, the information that he just stated that's on the missing poster is different than what the narrator said in one of the documentaries or what he just said. There's a lot of missed things here and there. That's obvious. But he does seem to post update videos when he has more information about a case. But before we discuss what I think is a pretty fair and thorough analyzing of the data itself in the book, in the very first book, there's a little bit of a backstory on how we got there. And I want to start off uh, with a little bit of that backstory on getting to that, I think, solid rational yet respectful skeptical viewpoint of the missing 411 subject because it shows a little bit about how information on the paranormal subjects we and most of our listeners seem to like i'm including us there's some people i think they love they are interested but they kind of hate it it's a love-hate relationship with anything paranormal they don't believe in any of it but they can't stop thinking about it and right. i love that i love that aspect i have no problem with that at all Look, I just want to say in a, in a general level for all of us, no matter your predilections here, information is important more so, probably even more so these days, and getting accurate information and knowing where it comes from and who's telling it to us. It seems a lot of information, this has probably always been the case. It's like, uh, you know, the, you can go back to the news media of the day having respect for FDR, not showing him sitting in a wheelchair. Uh, he was either propped up standing or you don't, you didn't show him below the waist because it could be construed as weakness. And hey, we're about to fight a big war. So again, no matter your persuasion or affiliations, especially these days, you can sense that information is being massaged. It's, let's say, processed a little before the public consumes it to fit a viewpoint for a specific audience. So this intro then is, it's not as I see it, any kind of a tangent, but it makes it very relevant, I think, to the subject and apropos to the series topic, because we should all know everything about who's delivering our information and their biases. And we have those two, of course. Everyone's got a narrative and a point of view. That's just human nature. It's natural. You should try and curb that and declare it and recognize it. So what I'm saying is it's best to know the motivations of the source or people delivering the information the, the way that they do. So then we can all make decisions that fit our individual sense of reason by considering all the information that's available and not just the information that we may already agree or disagree right. with. Or sometimes that info 
some other person or organization has decided for us that we should consume and consider. So when we go looking for a skeptical viewpoint on a subject, one of the best places to check is the Skeptical Inquirer. It's one of our favorite places to find something that's also not baloney. It's just, you may not agree with it, but it's smart, it's solid in its point of view. Yeah, it's a good source. Yeah, we may not ag- agree with everything they're writing, of course, because we we take a, an interest in, <laughs> and sometimes a serious interest in paranormal stuff where they're like, no. Right. But we believe you can trust it as a good representation of the skeptical side of an argument. So as I was checking their site and cross-referencing some other sources, I noticed a few EIC, everything is connected connections that made me smile a little bit. Uh, one of the sources, of course, that we, uh, we usually check if there is one is the wiki entry for the missing 411 or any topic we're doing just to see what they've covered. And of course, people, there's people that really hate that when <laughs> we mention it at all. But guess what? Tough luck. It's going to (laughs) happen. Again, one of the sources for the missing 411 is not so surprisingly, not so much about the purported phenomenon as it is about David Politis as a person. In fact, that's the title of the entry when you go searching missing 411 on Wiki. The Wikipedia entry for David Politis and his efforts seems to be, you could say, dismissive right off the bat. And I'm not surprised. I expect, you and I expect that nowadays. Yeah. It's like any any kind of a serious news source, scientific source, they're not going to give this much uh, credence or uh, or leeway. It's just, and so we're used to that. But here's the thing. Just tell me what you think, but tell me everything you think. Right off the bat, it, it seems a little dismissive. Again, I, I get that, and that's going to be the take. But it also seems to discredit him and his findings and anything and anyone associated with it. So, Scott, why don't you just read the first paragraph from the entry here. When you type in missing 411, David Politis comes up. Right, not missing 411. This is what it says. David Politis is a former police officer who is now an investigator and writer known primarily for his self-published books dedicated to proving the reality of Bigfoot and establishing the Missing 411 Conspiracy. Missing 411 is a series of books and films which document cases of people who've gone missing in national parks and elsewhere and maintain that these cases are unusual and mysterious, contrary to data analysis, which suggests that they are not actually statistically mysterious or even unexpected. It made me smile because it's like, oh, okay, don't I can I can kind of read between the lines here. And then actually uh, some of the lines to read between have been missing or eliminated. It seemed like it's just it, right off the bat, it's like nothing to see here, folks. This guy's silly and forget all this stuff. So first thing though, just breaking this down, I would argue that yes, the first two books he's written are Bigfoot books trying to prove its existence, I suppose, but he's not best known for those. The reason we're talking about this is not for Bigfoot, it's the missing 411. There is no sense to me in reading the first one, you know, which we read and cover to cover, there's no sense that he's trying to prove the reality of Bigfoot in this book at all. Like I said, the word Bigfoot comes up maybe two or three times. Uh, There's no digital copy of it, so it's hard to look and check, but we just had the paper copy. But I completely agree, there's an implication Mm-hmm. that that's one of the ideas that he's thinking. But that's not what is happening in the first book, Missing 411 Western United States and yeah. Canada. So that very first statement there on the Wikipedia page is inaccurate, in my opinion, about the dedicated to proving the reality <laughs> of Bigfoot. Yeah. I do not agree with that. Even right. though I have problems with the way the data is presented by Mr. Right. Politis, 
I do not agree with that assessment. Whether you agree or not, I just want people to recognize uh, how this smells a little bit. And also the optics, I guess, are the wording, the, the wording choices. Because if you listen to the news nowadays, no matter where you fall the political spectrum, you can see it from every side. That's what's kind of funny. And, and it becomes a game to pick that out. It's like, what's being said? What adjectives are chosen? What do you know that's being omitted? Is that happening with this missing series itself? Is it happening with the critiques of the missing series? And so here you get terms right off the bat here, self-published. And that's true for most of his books. I I think the first two, uh, Hoopa Project, Bigfoot Encounters in California and Tribal Bigfoot are with independent publishing companies like Hancock House. But he's self-published the other ones. And of course, when you say self-published, it's like they're not real serious books. They're PDF books. Anyone could do that. Or you self-publish because it's impossible to get anything published these days by a large publishing house. And so people are taking that route, just like musicians have stopped going through record labels. There's another side to that, too. So, yeah, I'm just saying. Okay, so so anyway, just uh, breaking this down some more here, putting the the Bigfoot books first, it's like, well, he's, of course, he's a kook. He thinks Bigfoot is real, and that's the main thing. Oh, also, he does this missing stuff which is a conspiracy because the subheader, uh, Bigfoot or Sasquatch, it's also listed before Missing 411. And in the investigation section of the wiki page, you have the term establishing the Missing 411 conspiracy. So you see this a lot nowadays, whether it's an actual phenomenon or just maybe it's just a large series of mundane coincidences with puzzling elements, which it may be. It seems fashionable these days to discredit somebody by calling them uh, or just suggesting that they're proposing a conspiracy theory or just labeling them conspiracy theorists. Like, okay, that's enough, that we've heard enough, move on. But you have to keep in mind that no one here is claiming that people aren't actually going missing. The missing people, of course, have family, loved ones. They have friends who've reported the missing, and the authorities, the police, Uh, Apparently, FBI and National Park Service have filed reports or they've investigated. They've searched for these people. Those cases are real. So the conspiracy part of this would be if the authorities are either not following through on the investigations and search and rescue because they know something disturbing about the cases that they don't want publicly revealed, and they're covering that fact up, or they're covering up that they just don't do their due diligence because they don't have enough resources or evidence to go on to arrive at a satisfactory conclusion. So it's not what the public's going to want. So then they're just dismissing the cases as ordinary accidents or death by misadventure, or as we cited earlier, unknown, undetermined. And that's enough, folks. We just don't know. And yeah. so they're coming out with that or maybe just labeling missing cases as missing presumed dead. So the conspiracy part of this, again, is that Politis might be suggesting that I don't think they're telling us everything. And I seem to have a hard time getting everything out of them. And it wasn't like with Yosemite until I made it public and people started, a bunch of people started asking questions that finally they released some data. Right. And then finishing up with that paragraph, contrary to data analysis, which suggests that they are not actually statistically mysterious or even unexpected. That's a quote from the opening paragraph. We're going to tell you where that quote comes from, actually. That's part of the study we're going to look at here in a bit. That also seems to put the phenomenon or conspiracy into the rubbish bin with nothing to see here, folks. So there you go. They've just told you, you don't even really need to read the rest of the article entry. It's all baloney. But if you want to, go ahead because we fixed it. This is not the Bigfoot you're looking for. (laughs) This is... (laughs) Uh, Go about your business. (laughs) 
Look, perhaps there isn't anything to see here. Perhaps there really is nothing mysterious about these disappearances. That's up to you, folks. I'm not attacking the skeptical viewpoints here. I want to be clear about that, okay? Or the people behind them. As I believe the mundane should always be considered along with all of the data. I'm just pointing out that there seems to be a little bit of tone to the counter-argument, which again, that may be a more accurate assessment of this apparent pattern. You got to do your own homework. You got to do your right. own heavy lifting. Because Caveat emptor, <laughs> especially when it comes to lifting. <laughs> right. In the lifting here, some things fell out of the arms, let's say. Like, you, you yeah. know, the pile of bananas you were carrying home is a few bananas fell off. You got you to gotta do your own stuff here. So maybe a more accurate assessment of this apparent pattern is to keep all considerations in mind as we explore the topic. And again, both for and against everything in between. But the reason I'm mentioning this and referencing the Wikipedia entry for David Pilates and the Can-Am Project is that always, always pay attention to and consider who or what organization is providing the information we consume. There is often, but not always, an agenda that's being pushed and proffered, sometimes behind the curtain, and to get a more well-rounded understanding of any subject, one should always try to peek behind that curtain. Or at the very least, well, usually there's there's a point of view being offered. So obviously we do it too. We just try to be honest about it. And we believe that the paranormal is possible in certain cases. That's on our table of consideration. It's not for everyone. And we also know that as humans, we're prone to confirmation bias. Again, us included. I'll openly admit in the confirmation bias category, obviously we're doing this show because we want things to be a little weird. That's <laughs> why we talk about stuff, yeah. you know, but we're also open to it not being weird. That's what I'm saying. And, we're, and, we're, and we respect in all cases yeah. the diligent approach to the data, regardless of whether or not it's pushing a mundane or a fringe philosophy. But now... To understand where the tone and the viewpoint of the entry come from, uh, at least uh, with this Politis entry and any Wikipedia page, really, you can look at the Talk tab subpage. And so when you do this for Politis's wiki entry, what you do is uh, you, you click on that talk, and that's up near, you'll see article on the top left corner of the page. And then there's an article and then talk. You click on that, and you get more information. And if you do that with this one, you click on the link for user S. Gerbich, and it's S and G-E-R-B-I-C. And I'm not sure how that's pronounced. It could be Gerbich, could be Gerbich. I'm going to say Gerbich. And this is a tip, folks. If you have any questions ever about the sources or debate over a Wikipedia entry and its claims and its sources, remember there's that tab up there. You can click on the article part that takes you to the main article, and then you can click on talk. And what that is is that there's a page that's dedicated to being a forum for how to improve the article, or as the header says, quote, this is the talk page for discussing improvements to the David Politis article. This is not a forum for general discussion of the article's subject. But of course, that doesn't stop people from taking a huge snipe at each other, or several. It's right. kind of fun if you like arguments uh, and reading about them because it goes back and forth. If and, you like uh, arguments, see points and remember, we're talking to the internet here. <laughs> <laughs> That's why they came. <laughs> in this case, there's a huge debate in the talk tab section about leading statements. Politus's status as a police officer or detective is being charged with a misdemeanor while on the job. And that happened, I think we mentioned it maybe in part one. We've talked about it off the air, but I don't, I don't know if we've got it in part one. I can't remember. Okay, just quickly here. There was a misdemeanor while he was on the job, as they say in the, in the biz. 
where he asked for an autograph as a police liaison officer. So I'm not sure if that was in his official capacity, but he used police stationery to ask for an autograph. Right. And I don't know if it was him personally, whatever, but that was a no-no. I believe over several years, he was able to litigate for his pension back. That's some, again, it doesn't matter to me. I don't care about that. So I, I didn't really look into it, but you can. But if you go on with it, it seems like Susan Gerbich is the username and her or her group were the main, if not sole authors of the wiki entry with some later corrections and addendums. And her sourcing connects to Kyle Polish's presentation. And that's K-Y-L-E-P-O-L-I-C-H. And I hope I'm saying the name right. I, I looked at a bunch of videos where he was the presenter and actually being uh, introduced by Susan Gerbich. So I apologize to anyone's name that uh, we may misstate going yes, forward. Yes, and I here. just want to add that something's going to be pronounced wrong in every episode of the show from now until we stop doing it. <laughs> okay, there. I said it. Some might be yeah. intentional. You you just won't know. <laughs> yeah. And, All right. <laughs> so we're going to talk about Kyle's presentation, which is the one I think is is pretty decent and one to sum up this whole section here. So more on him in a bit, but first... A little bit more of that backstory leading to the skeptical counterpoint, and it, it lays out like this. Susan Gerbich's byline or bio tagline for her Skeptical Inquirer articles reads, quote, affectionately called the Wikipediatrician, Susan Gerbich is the co-founder of Monterey County Skeptics and a self-proclaimed skeptical junkie. Susan is also founder of the Gorilla Skepticism on Wikipedia Project, GSOW, you can contact her at susangerbich.com. That's S-U-S-A-N-G-E-R-B-I-C.com. Now, this is not gorilla as in a sense of uh, eight primates, but in the, the sense of a person who engages in a regular warfare, especially as a member of an independent unit carrying out harassment and sabotage. Now, I'm not accusing her of that, by the way. I do uh, like her approach. Again, that's in the camp of the skeptic camp which is actually a group in Monterey Bay. And so I want to be clear, this is not an attack on her or what she's doing. I'm just pointing this out because it, it kind of fills in the backstory here. So it's just so you know how one of the main arguments that there is nothing to the missing 411 findings came to light and then how the wiki entry gets made. It's just, again, it's a little bit how the sausage gets made. It's not an attack on her or her group. Again, on this user page, there is a conflict of interest statement which again, I, I found this interesting as well. So this is written by Susan Gerbich as a statement that she, uh, to her credit, maybe she's forced to do this, but she posts this for all to know as, uh, well, read this and read the backstory if you want to know where my position comes from. And this is what she says. This was the finding of the March 3rd, 2022 by the ARBCOM committee. I'm stating that this is true and that they have determined that I have a COI or conflict of interest which I am clearly stating here. So this is the ruling, I believe, by the ARBCOM, the Arbitration yeah. Committee of Wikipedia. Yeah, that's yeah. part of the Wikimedia Foundation. The ARBCOM is a binding dispute resolution panel of editors. And it goes on to say here, each of Wikimedia's projects are editorially autonomous and independent and have established their own ARBCOMs, which are established by the project's editors and are usually annually elected by their communities. It's an arbitration committee that's supposed to be neutral, fair, balanced, all that good stuff. I believe their ruling or statement here is as follows. S. Gerbich, which is her handle, is Susan Gerbich, an activist 
for scientific skepticism who has a focus on exposing people claiming to be mediums and who is a columnist for the Skeptical Inquirer. She joined Wikipedia in 2010 and has not been previously sanctioned. Because of her work off Wiki, S. Gerbich has a conflict of interest with respect to the people and organizations Gerbich is involved with, which notably includes her work in Skeptical Inquirer and the people she has written about therein, and the Committee for Skeptical Inquiry, where she has been awarded a fellowship and which publishes the Skeptical Inquirer. And that ruling passed 12 to 0 on March 3, 2022. So it seems, by unanimous vote, by the ARBCON committee on the ruling of conflict of interest that, uh, concerning Politis at least, and Missing 411, the actions, the skeptical activism gang, she has a conflict of interest. Which, again, that's, you should know about that. Right. The conflict being that her point of view is geared towards deconstructing any sort of claims that you might be taking away from the Missing 411 and Politis in general. She's also made a comment which includes that, and it's the following, and this is on her user page as well. I'm not sure what this acronym all spells out, but it's F-L-O-T. G-S-O-W would be Gorilla Skeptics of Wikipedia, and then S-C. So this is her note. Congratulations to the G-S-O-W project. On March 16th, 2022, we uploaded our 2000th completed Wikipedia page. I'm so proud of this team. We uploaded our first page on April 26th, 2010, almost 12 years ago, and we are still at it. In fact, we are growing stronger all the time. As you know, we never, ever write stubs. So the pages we count in that 2000 are full, completed, brand new pages, or a page that was a stub and we rewrote into a full page. Just look at this number of page views. It seemed like just a couple of months ago, we celebrated 100 million page views, and we already are at 110 million page views. Remember, the GSOW works in many languages. 45% of all the work we complete are in languages other than English. And remember that we focus on all people and topics that fall under the skepticism, pseudoscience, or science umbrella. That is a wide net. I would call this a wonderful success. Thank you to all who have helped make this possible. S. Gerbich, March 18th. 2022. So just this year. So it seems like she and her collective of skeptical activists have created or contributed to or influenced a lot of the web pages for topics that probably fall under the paranormal and supernatural genre. Mystery solved about who's writing. Yeah, it. this is the answer to something that we've brought up about how these pages are all changing and they seem yeah. to be changing to yeah. an extreme as opposed to a middle because for them, there is no middle when it comes to the types of things we talk about. And for us, there, there can no. be a middle or both no. sides might exist in certain cases. That explains why, when you know, from the time that we started to where we are now, we have seen a shift in the presentation of Wikipedia pages on the types of topics we cover. I expect that. I'm not shocked. I'm not upset when I yeah. see there's a tone because there's some that are, for example, the Patterson-Gimlin film. That's a very large page. And, yeah. you know, we scoured that thing to make sure that we were covering all the sources mentioned in it and that we had got the timeline right because uh, we we double cross-checked that between that and uh, Green's book, I think. And we noticed that, you know, it, it lined up. It was pretty factual. And I think it was pretty fair because it, it presented both yeah. sides of that, uh, you know, one purported statement. And then there was a section where here are some people who don't really think that's true. 
and they listed them and it, you know, it was, it was motion experts, primate experts, uh, whoever it was. I think it was pretty fair, but here's the thing is that it didn't skimp on the story. It told you everything I thought, and then it let you make up your mind. I felt I applaud their tenacity, their will, their drive, their just sheer work. That is a lot of work. On the other hand, I don't mind if someone updates and corrects the information. I would like that to happen. I want the most updated and corrected information. I want to see where it came from. I want correct footnotes. I want accurate information, as in the missing 411 subject. What I don't really care for is someone or some group deciding for me what I should see or hear or not before I get a chance to make up my own mind or anyone else's mind out there because it seems like we're not smart enough to make up our own mind. And again, I'm not saying they're doing this in every case, but definitely they are going and uh, stripping out the stuff or at least pointing to things. And and actually, they're relaying a point of view and a bias. So I just thought that should be pointed out. And it was interesting how the, uh, the path of information arrives from them and gets intercepted and then arrives to us. So now this is how the presentation by Kyle Polish arrived to us. This article was published in the Skeptical Inquirer, February 3rd, 2017, and it was by Susan Gerbich. And she writes that uh, this is the first conference of Skepticamp happening in Monterey County, California, put on by her local group, the Monterey County Skeptics, MCS. And in January 2014, they held their first camp. Now, if you're into this stuff, it sounds like fun. You're going to meet a lot of interesting people. And again, you may not agree with them, but these are all, from what I gather, very smart people. They have pretty compelling arguments. It's just not going to be woo-woo. Or if there's woo, they're going to tear down the woo. And they actually say woo themselves. But here's a little side anecdote that I thought was pretty telling. And makes us realize that no matter where your opinions and your your beliefs fall, we're all just humans trying to get by here in life. Because Gerbich writes, quote, we need face-to-face interactions. Some of our people tell me that our meetups are where they can be themselves. They don't have to guard their language, and no subject is taboo. Often they tell me that they are uncomfortable having these conversations at home and never have them at work. This is their chance to meet like-minded people with whom they can discuss all kinds of topics without looking over their shoulder, wondering who might be listening, end quote. So to me, it sounds like they're just the other side of the woo coin, where folks who believe in the paranormal feel like they can't fully express their beliefs. It just struck me as a little ironic that it's just the other end of the spectrum, that we're all just folks here with our beliefs and ideas and what we think is correct. And I would have bet money that you could be a skeptic at the office water cooler with your logical, rational, obviously beliefs, and you'd be fine. You wouldn't think yeah. that people, you know, people nobody's going to believe they'd be like, I think that Bigfoot isn't real. I would guess <laughs> yeah. it's the guy's like, yeah, Bigfoot's totally real. Why won't you people see this in the break room? That guy's going to get eye rolls. But right. this is what's funny is that, th- yeah, these folks think that they're going to get eye rolls for their beliefs, where in their mind, they're just presenting the logical, scientific, rationally accepted point of view. So it brings us all a little bit together, right? That they're just yeah. af- as afraid as people who believe everything that they hear. And these people who uh, take a skeptical viewpoint to everything they hear, they're all afraid to express their opinions because I guess, I don't know who's rolling, uh, Bigfoot folks, maybe it's like the people who chased away the Redditor who made the posts that were critical of these cases. 
So then we we keep coming back to Kyle Polish, who uh, Forrest has mentioned here, and how he got into the picture, because we want to talk about Kyle's perspective on the missing 411. And we wouldn't be aware of that if he hadn't gotten involved with Susan Gerbich and Skepticamp. So at the right. very first Skepticamp they were talking about, which was what I think, what was that, 2014 earlier? I can't remember. This may have been at a later date. That was the very first meeting they had. So first of all, who is Kyle Polish then? Why are we talking about him? So mm-hmm. this is from the dataskeptic.com website. That's his website. He is the founder of Data Skeptic, which is a popular podcast about artificial intelligence, which we just covered, yeah, yeah. Uh, machine learning, and data science. Outside of hosting the show, he runs a boutique consulting group that helps small and medium enterprise companies deploy data-driven automated solutions Mm -hmm. in the cloud. And in discussing his podcast, the Data Skeptic Podcast features interviews and discussion of topics related to data science, statistics, machine learning, artificial intelligence, and the like, all from the perspective of applying critical thinking and the scientific method to evaluate the veracity of claims and efficacy of approaches. I would like to talk to him about AI, yeah, and machine learning. Yeah, I like to talk to him about a lot of stuff. So one of the things that Gerbich said was he was at their very first Skepticamp, and he gave a lecture there. And during this lecture, he talked about David Politis, who he had, uh, I guess, come to be aware of through coast-to-coast appearances and other things like that. And he listens, apparently, to a lot of paranormal podcasts. So I, I don't know. Maybe he's right. us. I, I doubt it. But Maybe he has. I don't know. He's not following us on Twitter, but we are him yes. now. So uh, I want to quote a section here that Gerbich wrote about Polish's take on Politis. Quote, Politis takes any case of a missing hiker as being part of the conspiracy, even if the case has a natural explanation. He gave no reason for disappearances, but finds odd correlations for them. For example, two women missing in different years both had names starting with an A with three letters, Amy and Anne. Politis, in another example, stated that something was odd because in a few of the disappearances, berry bushes were nearby. Seriously. (laughs) After the lecture, I asked GSOW, that's the Guerrilla Skeptics Organization, to get involved, and one of my editors, Rob Palmer, went through David Politis' Wikipedia page and cleaned out all the bad citations and promotional language. Kyle's research is now a part of the Wikipedia page. I asked Kyle to write up his investigation for PSYCOP, which is the uh, Center for Skeptical Inquiry mm-hmm. that we were talking about, PSYCOP.org, so watch for it soon. Now, again, this right. was several years ago. So... That gives you a little bit of an idea of how Polish got onto our radar uh, from the diligent work that Forrest was doing, drilling down on the Politis webpage and seeing how it was constructed. That led us to her, which then led us to him and Polish's information here. Well, uh, Forrest, why don't you take it from here on how his information was uh, presented? Okay, well, here we go. The title of the report is An Investigation of the Missing 411 Conspiracy by Kyle Polish. And again, that's K-Y-L-E-P-O-L-I-C-H. And it's from volume 41, number four, July through August 2017 of the Skeptical Inquirer. And you can go to skepticalinquirer.org and we'll have a link to this uh, article, of course. And again, what I thought was a, a pretty well-written article, critical but fair, clearly laying out questions to the claims in a logical, rational way Kyle makes effective points about the problems he sees with some of the findings. Now, again, I I base the fair criticism against all the (laughs) the ones you'll find online that are are not so fair and not so nice. Now that you've heard some of the details of the cases, see if you agree or disagree. So first off, Kyle states that Politis' claims and conclusions or presentation of the cases and their correlations are vague. 
they are, as he says, quote, steeped in the milieu of conspiracy and the supernatural, as Politis frequently appears on paranormal-oriented radio shows and podcasts to discuss it, end quote. Kyle, and I hope he doesn't mind me using his uh, quote-unquote Christian name, <laughs> though I just thought it's journalistically unprofessional, but I think it sets a friendlier tone. And, and again, if I'm incorrect with Polish, I'm not just repeating it ad nauseum. So, but I will continue to refer to Mr. David Politis in the journalism style of using his surname. So it's just not a lot of Kyle and Dave. Anyway, so Kyle finds it interesting that Politis always avoids providing any explanations for the cause of these supposedly mysterious disappearances, and it seems Politis' stance of just asking questions, quote-unquote, is a bit of a cop-out. I think it's interesting here because you can't really win in that Politis doesn't really jump to a conclusion. Well, I, I would say in this book, he avoids that. I think the jumping to conclusions starts to happen more frequently as the books go on. The more you study any one thing, you get to where you start to do more suppositions as you go along the way, no matter the, what based on, Yeah, again, based on experience. So over the 10, 12 years that he's been doing this, it's just you start to develop more of a, a theory of, might be, of what might be going on. And then you apply that. And then sometimes you're wrong. Some It's the same people who say, like, I think this is demons. Or I think this is the spirit of a Civil War soldier. And in that regard, I'm less sure what anything beyond the veil is. <laughs> so, yeah. But I think I can ask better questions. So in any case here, there's a little bit of criticism in that uh, it's a little bit vague in that he's not providing any explanations, really. And Kyle thinks that Politis, uh, since he's written his first Bigfoot books, and is the founder of the North American Bigfoot search that he would come to some kind of cryptozoology explanation. And he doesn't so much. And I think what's weird is that I think Kyle was expecting that. It didn't happen. And maybe he's a bit disappointed because it's more solid. And I think if you pick something, then you know where the person's anchored in, right? And another part of the criticism is that when you don't provide a explanation, even if it's cryptids or anything crazy, then the missing mythology starts to build. It gives it room to evolve as its own thing. Do you know what I'm saying here? Is that you're not just saying like, it's all Bigfoot, you know? I know, but that's ridiculous to me. That's up to you as you take the information in. You, right. you know, if you jump to a conclusion based on something that isn't even said, that's not the responsibility of the author, in my opinion. I completely well, agree with most of what Kyle says here that we're about to right, talk right. about and have talked about. But this point I have contention with, it's like, and it's a criticism that we did mention. I know we mentioned in part one yeah. about how, and I've said multiple times that the, the word Bigfoot only occurs in this first book, maybe two or three times. Right, right. You know, whether it's implied or not, you know, this isn't a political book. There's a difference yeah, there. If we yeah. were talking about politics or some other kind of thing that's uh, more directly related to group behavior or whatever, mm -hmm. but like just not saying whether you think this is Bigfoot or a cryptid or, or I don't know, it's just, this is weird. We should all take a deeper <laughs> look at it. I don't yeah. think there's a problem with that. That's fine to be an approach yeah. in a presentation of data, in my opinion. Where I think the, the argument's being framed in this, in this regard, and that it's when you don't take a firm position, you're free to do a lot more shenanigans with it, let's say. And so he's yeah. saying, again, the, the position is like, well, I'm just asking questions here. I'm, don't don't blame me for anything. Yeah. Not in that voice, but we don't. You know what I'm saying? But here's what I was going <laughs> to no say: offense, is personally, Kyle. no, that was actually be the politest voice. Like, well, don't blame oh, okay, me. I'm the, just asking. Well, no yeah, offense, I'm just, politest. Yeah, right. I'm just bringing stuff up. You have to decide. So again, it's not uh, the strongest thing. You're not taking a stance. But I I think 
personally, just asking questions without putting forth speculations about any conclusions is okay, because the opposite, what would that be? Just we don't talk about any of this stuff? You know, or unless you only talk about it, unless you had some concrete evidence as cause. You can't talk uh, about it unless you know the answer. Right. Right. That's a trap. Thank you. That's what I was saying to begin with. So anyway, continuing to summarize Kyle's article, uh, Politis to him seems evasive when pressed for a causal explanation, uh, seeing his role as I'm just an investigator pointing to a problem, but not a cause. So continuing on with that. uh, Right. This is the unfrozen caveman theory. I don't know what the sun (laughs) is. Right. Is the moon trying to eat the sun? I don't know how these things work. Yeah. Yeah. Right. You're begging. It's just like, don't blame me. I'm just pointing to uh, some problems here. Well, to Kyle, this leaves the door open for all kinds of craziness, right? Like alien abductions, ghosts, kidnapping fairies. That's actually something he wrote, not me. And quote, this is a, I love this one, transdimensional chupacabra. And mm. as explanations for a non-existent mystery. So this is what I'm saying is, is psychological uh, part of it is that when you don't say, I think it's a gang of serial killers visiting the national parks doing this or uh, whatever you think it might be, even if it's Bigfoot, like you said, it's like, okay, well, his stance is Bigfoot. Now it can be anything, right? That's all to him nonsense. So the topic is yeah. intentionally ambiguous so as to leave room for the promotion of any non-scientific explanations. Wow, you're talking me into it, Kyle, a little bit here. I'm, I'm picking up what you're putting down, Kyle. <laughs> <laughs> I'm picking part of it up, sniffing it, and then putting it back because that's what you yeah. should do in the woods. Don't take anything with you. <laughs> but listen to this. I think you're going to like this one. I certainly did. So this is the next paragraph in the article, and I learned a little something too here. Kyle Polish says that despite... Politis, having been on programs like Coast to Coast AM, speaking at MUFON conferences, and his interest in Bigfoot, quote, proper skepticism, end quote, requires that the claims of the missing 411 project should be considered while setting aside Politis's history and beliefs. That is fair to me. Okay? And he goes yes. on to say, same as we should not dismiss Linus Pauling's legacy in chemistry. And if you don't know who he is, uh, he won the Nobel Prize as well as the Nobel Peace Prize. The only person considered one of the top 20 scientists of all time, the only person to win two unshared Nobel Prizes. Kyle says, we shouldn't dismiss Linus Pauling's work because, quote, his pseudoscientific beliefs about vitamin C, end quote. Now, this is something I didn't know. I knew... Pauling was into the idea of high doses of vitamin C. I was really not aware that it was considered a, a quackery. I right. knew it was controversial a little bit, but it's vitamin yeah. C, you know, like what's the big deal? But yeah. again, I find it interesting that- I know people uh, that swear by emergency. So that's a Pauling yeah, idea. Well, there, there you go. Well, here, here's the get. Here's the deal on, on Pauling, it seemed to me, reading up on it, is that uh, it worked in his case. So yeah. like everybody else, like, hey, it worked for me. I believe in it. I just find it interesting how you can uh, have this lauded of a scientist for everything else, but like vitamin C, nut case. Yeah. <laughs> so just the ideas are dismissed depending on what you think is uh, pseudoscience. And and that's just people. That's what they do. They got, he's got, uh, he's brilliant, but he's got a wacky idea. So getting back to the counterpoints though, here's a common one that we addressed a little bit. Kyle says, it's not outside the realm of possibility that a serial killer in the woods is the cause. And then the reason that they're not caught is perhaps the National Park Service is underfunded, understaffed. The local police departments, they don't have the tools or the skills to detect these people. Well, he says Politis has never put this particular claim forward and that uh, he would rather lean towards a supernatural conclusion. 
having read all of the first book at least, and then also done outside additional research, Mm -hmm. drilling down on several of the cases and finding things that conflict or important information that was left out by Politis. And definitely there are cases in there that I think squarely could be serial killer or a domestic violence type abduction cases. Certainly. But overall, big picture serial killer for a lot of these cases, absolutely no way, unless that person is like a Delta SEAL in the most advanced ghillie <laughs> suit you could ever get in your life, who can hike in the, you know, yeah. run across the mountains, be invisible even though they're 10 feet away from you, and leap across boulder fields and alluvial fans. I, I disagree that that's a possibility as someone who's very familiar with a lot of the cases and beyond just Politis's presentation of them in the first book, I right. say that Overall, as an overarching concept, no way. Some of the cases, yes, but not like an over the missing 411 to say this isn't Bigfoot, it's a serial killer. I completely disagree with that. Well, you see, because you're talking about somebody, unless they are the, you know, cannibalistic humanoid underground dwellers in the forest where they live off the forest, should as a mountain man and, uh, or, or worse, if this is like a somewhat city dweller doing this and has a think it's and thinks it's a perfect place to do it they also have to get out of the woods themselves you know what i'm saying exactly it's just as treacherous for them right in these spots and it's more likely to me that it, that somebody fell in a crevasse yeah and they have to uh live in the woods and not leave trash anywhere or a campsite or anything remotely yeah. human yeah, it just it doesn't make sense to me. Unless they are a supernatural killer, like in the Ooh, series here we I've, go. Been tr- Interdimensional I've been trying serial to. Killer. There's well, a, not there's to make light of uh, people being murdered, but look, it's like we said, we're absolutely not. We're not getting to the the spot where we think that interdimensionality is more or less likely in these cases. I just I don't know. There's not enough. Nobody's seen anything like that. Nobody said they saw a portal open. Now, however, we covered other stories that I. Ones that I personally like, and this is, again, my bias, is that the story of the little girl who went missing in the woods for three days. And if you believe this, if you're willing to go along with it, she just vanished into thin air. Parents are looking for her. She goes to the great underside where she says she can see people looking for her, but they can't hear her or see her. She calls out to them, and somehow, I guess she can't touch them either, but she sees them looking for her. And somehow she just comes back. She's back in her bed. Her clothes are muddy. And she just mysteriously comes back. And her parents are like, how'd you get back here? We've been searching for you for three days. She goes, well, I could see you guys. You just couldn't hear me. And this is what you said. And this is how you behaved or this is what you did. And again, maybe some people can slip behind that veil and come back. And some people can't come back. Uh, but there's plenty of cases like the missing time, time slip cases, uh, missing place cases where people slide seemingly into another, I don't want to say dimension or realm or whatever it is. They're just another place. It looks the same. Certainly we heard about that in the Black Eyed Kids yeah. you know, series where they were driving down the road and just like, this has been going on for an hour. We should have passed this point in 10 minutes. It's like the road just keeps stretching and stretching and stretching. Where is that place? Are these people who go missing somewhere else? Well, I don't, I don't know. But again, that's a possibility that I might keep on the table. But before we move on, Scott, I'll leave you with this. I've been trying to get you to watch the fantastic series, The Outsider. And for Halloween coming up, it couldn't be more perfect because it's based on a Stephen King novel. Richard Price is the screenwriter, the series writer, terrific screenwriter and author. 
it'll creep you down to your socks. But it's kind of like what we're talking about here is that there's something going on that is both physical and beyond. And it results in uh, murders and missing. So getting back to Kyle, something else that's kind of fun that's coming up here that I learned about. He was fascinated by the intrigue of the missing, but also by the vagueness of the claims. And consider that maybe Politus was onto something legitimate. Really? That See, there you go. I appreciate that open-mindedness. Yes. But on the other hand, it's something with a practical explanation. It's that maybe he did stumble onto something that was statistically unusual. So he used, quote, Hyman's categorical imperative to conduct a skeptical investigation, which is, that imperative is, do not try to explain something until you are sure there is something to be explained. I can dig that. So one interesting thing that Kyle did to verify the cases in the first missing 411 Western United States and Canada was to use a random number generator to Mm. pick places Mm. in the book and the cases on each page. And what he found was that Politis wasn't making these disappearances up. They are all related to real events. Now, in the two cases of a missing hunter and hiker, Politis states that, quote, law enforcement officials have said they believe foul play was involved, end quote. But Kyle believes both cases are banal and not unusual. Again, with the cases of the two stranded parents with drug problems and their missing infant, Kyle didn't find any scattering of remains, as Politis claims, but the child was never found. Yet again, it seemed mundane. The 69-year-old hiker climbing Mount Shasta in 70-mile-per-hour winds struck him as a bit non-mundane, as Politis quotes one local saying, quote, according to local legend, beings called Lemurians lived underneath Mount Shasta. Maybe the Lemurians got Carl. <laughs> oh, dear. Uh, yeah, Kyle pokes a little fun at some of the other non-sequiturs, as with Politis mentioning that two women who disappeared from the same place years apart, were named Amy and Anne, and that maybe there was a connection there. And he he jokes that uh, maybe maybe there's a Batman villain to blame here. Oh, uh, yeah. Well, yeah, and Kyle also winks at statements by Politis that in many disappearances, berries and berry bushes seem to play a common role. Yeah. Uh, and he felt like that made the book feel a little like satire, like it just sounded so ridiculous to him. Yeah, no. Mm. However... <laughs> Counterpoint, to Kyle, everything about Politis's book seems sincere, and his interpretation is that Politis genuinely believes something mysterious is going on. Yeah. Most of his reporting he found to be factual and generally respectful of the missing. Politis doesn't blame the victims. Kyle gives credit to Politis for praising the top physical conditioning and wilderness skills of the missing, which makes their disappearances by natural causes more unlikely. The article points out that Politis has some loose criteria, though, to determine if a case is actually a missing 411 type, as not all qualify according to his observed pattern. Some of these criteria are if the rescue dogs can't pick up a scent. If true or not, this factor should be considered. Another optional criterion is if the deceased were found with their clothing removed, usually pants, shoes, or boots. Politis points out that this doesn't make sense in most cases, but Kyle presumes that Politis, like him, must not have been aware of the condition of paradoxical undressing, where people suffering from hypothermia sometimes will feel irrationally hot and begin to remove articles of clothing in order to cool themselves. So we've talked about that in other cases before, where that is a 
sad conclusion to somebody being uh, exposed to extreme coldness for a long time. It doesn't happen right away. It doesn't happen to everybody. It's an end stage thing. And it's something exactly. of, we already mentioned this in part one of this series, but it's, it's something we talked about extensively for the first time when we uh, covered Dyatlov Pass. That's right. Right. And yeah. but I wonder here in these cases, how many cases where clothing was found removed happened when the conditions were cold enough to elicit hypothermia in most people. You, you know what I'm saying? It's like with the cases that we're talking about where clothing is removed, was that cold enough to elicit right. hypothermia in most people? Because the definition here, 20 to 50% of hypothermia deaths are associated with paradoxical undressing. So it's not everybody. Usually at the most, yeah. very generally, 20 to 50%. So as they say, it typically occurs in moderate and severe hypothermia then that's when the person becomes disoriented, confused, combative. They may begin to shed their clothes, which in turn increases the rate of heat loss. So th at that point, it's a horrible spiral. Interesting. Yeah. And then the rescuers who are trained in mountain survival techniques, they're taught to expect this. However, people who die from hypothermia in urban environments who are found in an undressed state are sometimes incorrectly assumed to have been subjected to a sexual assault, when in fact it was just paradoxical undressing. One explanation, they're not entirely sure, I believe, why this happens, but it's a cold-induced malfunction of the hypothalamus, uh, the part of the brain that regulates body temperature. Another explanation is that the muscles contracting, peripheral blood vessels become exhausted, and this is known as a loss of vasomotor tone, and then they relax, and that leads to a sudden surge of blood, hence heat, to the extremities, and that causes the person to feel overheated. So suddenly you get this okay. rush of blood. It's like, whoa, I feel really hot. And then by that point, you're already kind of confused and dazed anyway. And uh, right. it's not a good last stage. No, it sounds horrible. Uh, yes. Well, there's another condition that people don't uh, often think of. I mean, a lot of us nowadays have heard of paradoxical undressing. But what about terminal burrowing? That could be a factor in a lot of these cases as well when you find somebody in a weird place. Yeah, that's something I hadn't heard of until we did this episode, actually. This is also known as hide-and-die syndrome, according to Wikipedia. Mm -hmm. And this, too, occurs in the final stages of hypothermia, where folks uh, will go into small, enclosed spaces, such as under a bed or behind a wardrobe, and it is often connected to paradoxical undressing. Researchers in Germany claim this is, quote, obviously an autonomous process of the brainstem, which is triggered in the final state of hypothermia and produces a primitive and burrowing-like behavior of protection, as seen in hibernating mammals, end yeah. quote. But this happens mostly in cases where temperature drops slowly, which is different. Right. It's over an extended period of time where you have a, a, a slight lowering of temperature gradually, like I said, not somebody caught up uh, in a snowstorm or maybe falling into a, a creek and getting wet and cold. The other thing that's interesting is that not only do we have this animal lizard brain reaction, perhaps, of, of trying to burrow, is that we often think of this only maybe in outdoor situations. But as I said, they found people freezing to death in indoor conditions, and then they go behind a dresser or something. I will say this. I'm going to talk a little bit about this in my conclusions, but I've done a lot of camping and I can tell you, it doesn't have to be that cold outside to get hypothermic. And, you know, the time no. that you find out how cold it is, generally, if you're in a tent, in, in my experience, is about 3 right. a.m. That's when it's like, <laughs> oh, this is, boy, this is a whole different thing from what it was yeah. today. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Here's, here's <laughs> so. another thing is that it tends to stretch time 
immeasurably is that, oh my God, I just remember these guys who bivouacked on the, I can't remember if it was Everest, but they were talking about it and they got caught in a storm. They weren't planning on it, but they decided the best course of action is to wait it out. They tried to sleep like, okay, we'll just sleep through this. And it just, they were just lying there freezing, shivering, and they they were, you know, well-equipped, but still very cold. I just remember the guy, uh, he's like, okay, got it. The sun must be coming up soon. We can get on with this. Like, it's got to be, we got to have been laying here for like seven, eight hours. And he looked at his watch and like 45 minutes went by. Oh, yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, why don't you talk about another critique of this problematic here of optional criteria? Right. So this is cases where the bodies are found some distance away or at an Mm -hmm. elevation from where the missing were last known to be. And Kyle states that most of these supposedly baffling distances are only a few miles from the last known location, which he feels is not really that far away. He doesn't want to dismiss any cases because of a shorter perceived distance, but he didn't find anything exceptional in the cases he reviewed. He did think the strangest one was the hiker found three days later, 14 miles away, but as a hiker, he doesn't think that's an implausible distance to cover in three days. He'd like to see Politis rank his cases by inexplicable distance because then if the best case was dismissible, the rest would be two for him. Right. So that's interesting. That might be easier said than done with all the weirdness of these and and, uh, and the differing uh, informational factors. If any of these cases don't fit the criteria of the missing 411 pattern, it doesn't disqualify them from being included. Sometimes in a minority of cases, missing people were found alive, but curiously, these all seem to be young children. Kyle supposes that a missing adult could give an ordinary explanation, whereas a child might not be able to account for their disappearance, which leaves open the possibility of an unusual cause. Like bears, or right. Berenstein bears, or Berenstain bears, or oh, talking bears, or, or Bigfoots. Uh, yeah. But <laughs> no, I mean, I, that Berenstain is, um, it just, uh, it, that's one case with a happy ending. Actually, a couple of them where the uh, the child was found alive after being uh, out in the, in the cold a, a night or two or three, and they said a bear took care of them, yeah. or something big and furry. Right. right. And uh, again, uh, we talked about this a little bit before, but I just wonder what the kid experienced and what they saw. And really, was it a bear? And, you know, were they frightened? Were they comforted? The one involving Connie Marie Johnson, last seen near Big Fog Mountain, and that's a more recent case, uh, that's near Grangeville and happened on October 2nd, 2018. Her dog was located. It went missing with her. Both her and the dog were not found at the hunting camp. Uh, The dog was located 15 miles from the camp on October 24th, so sometime later, the description by the SAR people was that the dog looked really well fed. He was not suffering. He was not hindered in any way, was not struggling with anything. Looked like he'd been eating well and was well, uh, you know, nourished, hydrated. I think he came back to a ranger station, maybe is how they found him. And so, of course, then they tried to get the dog to go search for, I mean, I don't know if it's a bloodhound, but they tried to get the dog to go search for his owner, Connie. And the dog wouldn't go. He wouldn't follow the track. So it's another case of that happening. Now, is that unusual? Maybe the dog just didn't want to get lost again. But in either case, the dog knows what happens, I would presume. Just can't tell you. Kyle also surmises that only Politis himself can determine if a case fits the missing 411 profile because Politis's criteria is so imprecise. Now, on the whole, Kyle found no outstanding cases while researching the first missing 411 book. Nothing spooky, in his opinion. 
No one found 10 years later without having age. No one popping up on the other <laughs> side of the planet. No cryptic right. notes or ciphers found. And he says, quote, disappointingly typical of what one would expect from a missing mm. person's case, end quote. Not any more unusual than a rare or unplanned disappearance. Now, Which I, 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 don't, hope... I don't agree with Kyle about. Right. I think there are some in there that are pretty befuddling. So I'm, I'm not sure what right. Kyle's criteria is for what's right. weird here. I agree with most of what he's saying. Right. By the way, most mm -hmm. of it. So, but I don't necessarily agree with that. Having you know read the book myself, you know what is weird? What exactly is weird? And so he has an opinion of that. He's a data scientist, data expert, but to him, it's like I don't see much going on here. But the cases, you know, some of them are weird, sure. But for me, and I hope that these people would have been found. But they're again, that's what we're hoping for because we like these kinds of stories. Is that somebody was found five years later? totally fine, hadn't aged a day right? Uh, or 10 years later, or somebody pops up <laughs> on the other side of the globe is like, I, I just found myself in China and I had to get people to help me fly back to the US because I don't know how I got here. Yeah. Or just something really, he's talking about anything really extraordinary. So that's the, the upper level of his definition set, right? Is that it has to be really weird or cryptic notes, Summerton man. Another critique is that Politis's argument is more or less uh, that even if a couple of the cases are explainable, they can't all be explainable, and that taken all together, the sum total of the disappearances isn't explored as some other more mundane trend. There isn't an overall truth to the cases. There must be ordinary cases within the missing data set that are caused by foul play, kidnappings, undetected suicides, animal attacks, people willingly disappearing to start new lives, and other natural explanations. It might be unusual if you could calculate all the disappearances of people in a year and see if a suspicious number of them were happening in our national parks. But he says that's a difficult statistic to analyze. Right. Quoting him here, he says, people do disappear and any disappeared person must have a last known location. However, that doesn't make every location on the planet equally probable for generating a missing person. Right. I looked into this briefly and found that if anything, you're less likely to disappear from a national park than from a major city. End quote. Yes, I, I believe that's true, but I'm not going to go camping in a spot where it's known that a bunch of people have gone missing from. We talked about this a little earlier in the show, is that, okay, if there was an alley where people just seem to vanish from, I'm not going down there. Right. I don't right. care what the reason is. I don't care if there's a portal there or if Mel from Mel's Hole was found there. I, that's where they just go dump people. Right. Or abscond with them. There's a, there's a reason for that. But again, I expect more of that in the cities. You know, when I go to a, a, a natural location like a national park or a campsite even, and I have, you know, every family has favorite campsites, you know, I expect there to be nothing statistically weird about it. And if there is anything that is, uh, by any measure, I might rethink that. Yeah. So that's yeah. what I'm saying is that it, it doesn't really matter in this sense. I guess that's what my nitpicking is about. That postulation is that that maybe is a false equivalency in that we're talking about specific areas in the woods. And yeah, it's not as likely, but if you go to these spots and then the numbers increase, whatever, because it's less likely, because there's not a bunch of bad people roaming the, that alley that in the city, is that it's a little more suspicious to me. Right. I'd be a little more cautious about that because I'm thinking there, I shouldn't have to be. Well, Kyle said that if there was a disproportionately high number of disappearances in national parks, what's the responsibility of the National Park Service? Politis says the average NPS workers are good people, but he's frustrated with the administrators, hinting that they might be engaging in a conspiracy and obstructing his investigations, but also admitting that they've cooperated with his efforts. 
while also being evasive in some cases. A quote from Politis is, I believe they do have the data and that the data they possess would shock the average American citizen. Hmm. Now, Kyle has confirmed that Politis has made many FOIA requests, and some were denied, and states in his article that Politis didn't seem to lie about his details. However, if the NPS has been dismissive or evasive, that's not proof of anything mysterious. True. So let's talk about the response from the Park Service. Right. This is interesting. Yeah. The article lists some interesting facts about how missing persons cases are handled by the NPS. Speaking to their public affairs rep, Kyle Polish found that the cases in the parks are entered into the National Law Enforcement Telecommunications System, or inlets. Inlets, that's N-L-E-T-S, is a Mm -hmm. federated data sharing system used by law enforcement nationwide. But at the time of the article's publication, he was waiting for proof of any case that has failed to be entered. That's Kyle, by the way, yeah. Yes, that's Kyle. Yeah, right. He was waiting to get some evidence like, oh, well, there's a handful here that haven't been entered in the Yosemite system or whatever, yeah. So it seems fair that smaller or independent law enforcement organizations didn't have the resources to thoroughly review the inlet's data. So a suspicious pattern could go unnoticed, but the burden of proof is on the claimant. Mm -hmm. Kyle got in touch with the author of Ranger Confidential, which a lot of you will have heard of that book. I think it was a bestseller. Mm -hmm. Andrea Lankford. And she brought to his attention that there does exist some degree of controversy about the operation of the parks and the ranger system. Some highlights related to him include, rangers are asked to cover too many roles without proper training. Some think the parks are understaffed. Some think that rangers are not suited to handle some law enforcement duties that fall under their jurisdiction. There are calls for reform. If there are problems with the NPS, it's not mysterious to Kyle. He found it curious that if Politis knows of these problems with the NPS organization, he's not commented on them, at least not in the first book. Politis also states a problem with the news media coverage of these cases, accusing them of tempering the story or not effectively asking specific questions about the scene. Kyle asks, where's the evidence that the news media is failing to ask about specific evidence in these cases? Where's the evidence that the NPS is trying to silence some details? And I agree with that. There seem to be... Yeah. Politis seemed to be saying, well, they're not covering this or whatever. There's an implication of a cover-up, but it's just a hard thing to see. And if anything, I think with the media, (laughs) based on our experience and all the research we've done over the years, it's really just kind of negligent behavior. It's not... Yeah. It's not intentional. It's just a little bit of, uh, it, it, it's not, I wouldn't even call it incompetence. It's just, well, they're in a rush. Mm-hmm. They're doing that. I've got to get this data and right. go get that data right. and whatever. And they're not as thorough as they should be, but that doesn't necessarily mean they're intentionally hiding something. or concealing. Yeah. There may not be thoroughness on a lot of levels here, but you know, that's what you got. And the thing is like, you if this is meant to be secret by the forces that be, the powers that be, you're never going to find out anyway. So right. But it's an interesting observation. Now, Kyle Polish concludes his article thusly, quote, I've exhausted my exploration for anything genuinely unusual. After careful review, to me, not a single case stands out, nor do the frequencies involved seem outside of expectations. The lack of any specific claim affords this idea the elasticity to be unfalsifiable, and its sinister veneer makes it attractive to the conspiracy-minded. From the way in which I've observed it proliferate through the paranormal media, I suspect missing 411 will remain a curio-shelf theory for some time to come. When any missing person's case comes up, believers may be reminded of it, giving it a small injection of life 
in their cultural consciousness. Mm, well written. Yeah, that's why I, like I said I uh, I may not agree with everything, but I like the approach. Yes. Some things may not be seen as fair. Some things more so fair, but I I do admire the uh, intelligence of the article. And like I said, I think it was fair and respectful for the most part. And this is Kyle talking again. For me, as someone who visited his first national park, Yosemite, which Politis would say has the most missing people cases there. Right, right. Uh, Kyle says he visited last year. I'm grateful we have these national treasures. I look forward to visiting many more with only the most prosaic of concerns any responsible hiker or camper should have. So there. All in all, uh, my summation of Kyle Polish's analysis of the missing 411 theory is that it is a shaggy dog story. You ever hear that saying? Yes. Most, oh, you have? Oh. Mostly from you. But I had heard it before. <laughs> That's but true. you say it a lot, so yes. <laughs> I had not heard of it until 1995. I can give you the date because my friend Alex... No, he told me about this, like, oh, that's a shaggy dog story. And I had to have him explain it to me. I was like, oh, I like that. (laughs) Because here, the idea is this being a shaggy dog story to Kyle Polish is, sure, the dog is shaggy in some spots, but it's not that shaggy. Yeah. That's like, the the story is like, somebody tells you, like, you got to see this dog, man. He's really shaggy. I mean, unbelievably shaggy. It's unbelievably Uh, shaggy. uh, (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> like the one from the Beck album cover. Yes. Uh, like the, the, he With thought it was like flying Udon noodles. Yeah, you get there though, but to most people's perception, it's not that shaggy. But that's an interesting point here because to that person, it was really shaggy. Yeah. You go see it and it's like, eh, eh I've seen shaggy. It's, shaggy. You know, you know, it's perception and uh, it's personal viewpoint on stuff. And in this case, Kyle says, eh, interesting, but th- nothing to worry about here. Well, folks, this is it. You've been waiting a long time, incredibly Oof. long time, uh, for our <laughs> conclusions, which is what we're going to do now. Forrest, are you going first or am I going first? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, all right. Folks, feel free to go grab a sandwich if you just want to <laughs> let this run. Uh, it is a bit of a rambler, as you might expect from me. And uh, yeah, there's people that I know that are just like, oh, I cannot stand this. Anyway, that's fine. <laughs> that's, I'm not going to get mad at all. But here we go. All righty then. First off, I found this topic to be a mess on several levels, and with all the whiplash and controversy, it's made my brain hurt. But also, I'm I'm very glad that we finally tackled this. I think it is, there's something really interesting and captivating on a, maybe it's a primal terminal burrowing level that it captures our imagination. I think that's why we're all still talking about this, why it could be a very important discussion we're having. So I want to be clear, there's no disparaging on my part of the topic itself, Mr. Politis, the people that uh, disagree with him, anybody on any level, it's really about personal viewpoint, I think, is what it all sums up as. Uh, But let's talk about, is this something that should be looked at on a governmental level? So what's really going on here? Is it something, anything? If you think you want to determine if anything strange is going on and if there are remarkable and disturbing patterns or clusters in specific areas, on a governmental level, I believe, then some baseline definitions need to be established and agreed upon by enough authorities. Conclusions must be formed that a majority can agree on. If the goal is to establish that there's a credible threat to public safety beyond common known dangers in the wilderness, and you want something like the congressional hearings that Politis has called for. So you, you got to come to some kind of conclusion here, right? Right. Common ground, literally, maybe. 
These are obvious observations, of course, but I think overwhelming public pressure would need to be applied before a scientific forensic study is commissioned and accepted by the NPS and the U.S. government. A project like that seems like it would first depend on, of course, the accuracy of the data acquired, and you're going to need all the data, if you know what I'm saying. And then after that, it's about how you define the parameters. Basically, you need a common definition of what makes a set of case circumstances unreasonably justifiably and dangerously unusual, beyond expectations, making them warrant further investigation, or at least publicly documenting these cases and then issuing warnings, as you would in a shark-infested area right off of Maui, Lahaina. You know what I'm saying? It's just like, ah, oh, there's sharks there. Thank you for the warning. I don't care if they're magic sharks, if they're, yeah, <laughs> they're right. chupacabra sharks. I, from another dimension, shark is a shark. Bears right. are bears, Okay. So just as we've heard, not everyone agrees the evidence in these cases is all that strange. For some folks, their opinion is they're not at all unusual. Then you need to define what is a significant anomaly or pattern in locations. Could they be considered remarkable clusters of incidents compared to what's generally considered an acceptable baseline? You know, what, what's the baseline here? So... That means, what is just too weird that it might be some kind of phenomenon? How much coincidence is too much? Agreeing on what is unreasonably bizarre and then including that in a map might be the hard part for a governmental agency to officiate and then disseminate to the public unless they already know something we don't, is claimed by some. I'm not claiming that. I, I don't know. David Politis and the Can-Am team have already done that talk about criteria. And they have that set of criteria that they apply. The problem is for the critics is that they don't believe that set of criteria is adhered to strictly, applicable in all cases, or even that significant. Can-Am has a team of former and current professionals helping out, but I think for this to rise above a fringe annoyance for government administrators and a mere public curiosity, it would take something like university statisticians working with the expertise of a government-appointed task force of criminologists, crime scene investigators, search and rescue professionals, ones who deal specifically with wilderness cases, and then a massive amount of public pressure for disclosure. And I don't think that's all going to happen. Unless something like full governmental disclosure on UAPs occurs, then maybe that's the floodgate that something like this needs to happen first. And perhaps, like the slow drip of disclosure on the UAP phenomenon, it'll take so many cases to be vouched for by credible sources that at some point, it starts to look ridiculous if you dismiss what's going on, or if you deny what's going on. It seems plain to the majority that you're trying to cover something up. Personally, I'd want a professional opinion on what is considered mundane, what is extraordinary, and what is truly baffling and inexplicable. If you aren't a professional in these areas, like myself, what you have are speculations and assumptions. If you're an expert, what you have with a genuine mystery is an educated guess, and I'll take that over a regular guess any time. As a layman, though, it seems like these cases run that gamut. Perhaps it's something like how MUFON says that most of the cases they investigate, they believe to be misidentification by the public. Uh, it was a helicopter or it was the planet Venus. Those are <laughs> some things that are actually uh, identified by people. But there's a smaller fraction of cases that seemed too legit to quit. 
or maybe like cattle mutilations near Dulce Base. I remember hearing this interview on Jim Harold's Paranormal Podcast with former police officer turned author Greg Valdez, uh, whose father, Gabe Valdez, investigated cattle mutilations around Dulce, New Mexico, during his previous career in law enforcement. And I don't remember the exact numbers, but it struck me as really interesting. It's it's not a letdown, but I remember Greg saying uh, his conclusion was, after uh, his investigation of all these cases, that something like 94, 96% of the cases he looked into, he thought were really weird, but probably explainable by ordinary means. But it was that remaining 6 or 4% of cases that were just so extremely bizarre that they defied rational explanation. And that 4% is all you need. Like it's always said about paranormal stuff, not all the cases have to be truly paranormal. Just one has to be otherworldly for a phenomena to be possible. Or more eloquently, the words of William James, considered to be the father of American psychology, who we covered in the Watsika apps. Remember that, Scott? Yes, I do. Yeah, remember when he was talking about his beliefs in uh, medium Leonora Piper's abilities? Quote, If you wish to upset the law that all crows are black, it is enough if you prove that one crow is white. But that's the hard part of this subject, folks. Proof that an unusual threat exists. Another obvious observation is that this topic is as much or more of a referendum on David Politis as a person as it is about any perceived phenomenon. We've noticed that often happens when a subject is so out there, it's hard to wrap your head around it. So the easier thing to do is question the motives and integrity of the individuals presenting the claims, because that's simpler to comprehend. Again, I believe everything should be considered when trying to ascertain the truth. But I also believe some considerations should carry more weight or are more relevant to a subject than others. For example, I personally don't care how much money Politis is or isn't making off projects. That's not my hang-up. Sure, it's a consideration, and he's produced over a decade of content about it. But the more important consideration to me is the information presented in the books. Obviously, if a project makes millions, it doesn't make the information presented within it less truthful. Just as a project continually losing money doesn't give it any more veracity. You got to look for the truth in the data, not the profits or the personalities. Hmm. Can we put that on a sticker? Well, regarding the accusation by some that Politis is a sketchy, despicable grifter who just profits off the lured details of these victims' cases and the misery of the surviving family and friends, I think that's more of a question of intent. Because in some respect, you could argue that to varying levels, directly or indirectly, any successful media outlet or content creator is profiting off covering these cases. Indirectly, we are too. You probably just listened through or skipped through a handful of ads to get to this point. But if you look at this subject like it was true crime, then every media concern profits off its presentation The local news affiliates that cover these search and rescue efforts and family interviews run ads between their news stories. Major network programs like Dateline, 48 Hours, 2020, they make millions off the ads between segments of true crime and these cases. True crime podcasts that have ads or patrons make money presenting these cases. And yes, some hosts get accused as well of profiting off misery and death for the ghoulish tastes of an audience. And why do they do it? Because many of us gobble it up, myself included. And if a podcast doesn't have ads, more power to you, because we can guarantee you it still costs you money out of your pocket. 
And time, a lot of time. And a lot of time if <laughs> yeah. you're not recouping that because it costs money to have a podcast platform present it, distribute it for you. Things cost money, your stickers, your your whatever. And uh, I would just think you would want to have that break even at least. But hey, like I said, if you want to present this stuff and you're not making any money and you're beyond reproach, uh, I salute you. But again, why do they do it? Well, it's fair to say it's the responsibility of local news to let their community know what's going on. But they can't do it for free. Any media presentation on any platform costs money. But also, as it said, if it bleeds, it leads. You've said that a lot, and I, uh, I agree with that. News stories with sensational details draw viewers in. That's just how it works. Those network news shows routinely have high ratings, so they're not going away. True crime is the biggest genre in podcasting. Has been for a while, probably always will be. It's not our biggest subject, but we'll occasionally feature a true crime-oriented subject. So, I guess, logically, ethically, should we all stop watching or listening to these types of programs or stop paying attention to the stories or cases that involve death or vanishings? Or do you think it's worthwhile to keep these folks' memories alive and maybe solve a mystery to ease a family's worry if someone brings forth new evidence uh, or it comes to light because the case was not forgotten? That is a personal decision I'll leave to you. But as for Politis and the Can-Am Project, I believe we have seen errors in the data, and we have seen details left out. The easy assumption would be that it was done to further his narrative, his POV, his confirmation bias, mislead the consumer to keep the mystery and profits alive. Well, again, I think that's a question pertaining to his intention and motives, and I've seen no evidence of that. Uh, that is, what's in his heart and mind. Are these honest mistakes, not enough diligence with the details, or willful omission or misleading presentation for profit and point of view? Sure, Politis has made it his post-career life's work to keep this project going and to continue to uh, highlight cases he thinks fits the profile, and, and apparently it hasn't bankrupted him. But I still haven't seen proof of his intentions, and I don't consider making a living presenting these cases as proof of disingenuous behavior. Again, it's easy to speculate about a cynical objective, but on the other hand, as I said earlier, mostly the only reason we, and other media outlets too, are talking about these cases and keeping the memories of these victims alive is because of Politis and the Can-Am Project. Is that alone worthwhile? I'll let the listener decide. As for my view, and you don't have to agree with me or my reasoning, I'll side with Kyle Polish in getting a sense that no matter if Politis is totally right, totally wrong, or somewhere in between, and I might be wrong, of course, but my sense is that he genuinely believes that there is more to these cases that we should be paying attention to, and the public, for their own safety, needs to know about it. And he's respectful to the victims and families in the process. I don't care what his politics are, his spiritual beliefs, his history on the force, I don't feel an obligation generally to denounce all of the personal problematics of everyone connected to a story we cover because those are pretty minor considerations to me and irrelevant, especially with this topic. It's also none of my business. If you're aware of anything problematic, well, you didn't need us to tell you about it. Do your own Googling. If you're concerned we're giving him and his ideas a platform, quote-unquote, well, he already had a pretty substantial platform. We ain't really adding that much to it. To me, it's kind of like the boy who cried wolf. You can waste time debating whether the boy is a pathological liar and an awful kid, 
But the more relevant and critical concern is that there's a real hungry wolf prowling the village. So, what about any phenomenon? Well, if you're a skeptical debunker, then there can't be a paranormal or supernatural element. There must be a rational explanation, and any seeming coincidences are just that, coincidences, no matter how outrageous. If you entertain the possibility of the unexplainable being possible, like I do, then that's a whole other discussion. But on some base level, it, it doesn't matter to me what the cause is. The missing are still missing, and the dead are still dead. Friends and family still grieve. So in some respect, I don't really care what the cause is either. Many of the missing locations we mentioned are places I've visited or been near. It's a bit too close to home. Weirdly, it appears there's a cluster near Ellensburg, Washington, and, and maybe Mel's Hole, if you want to entertain that notion. So if, for example, there is data that three people have gone missing within 10 square miles in central Idaho on the same date over a span of 50 years, then I'll be thankful for that info, and I'll be sure not to camp in that area, because whatever the cause, it seems like it's an easy place to get lost. And I'll especially avoid that area on that date. A paranormal angle just makes it more interesting to those who aren't the victims and their loved ones. Personally, I love the woods and camping, hiking, outdoor activities, so my bias is that I hope or would like to think there is nothing sinister or mysterious going on in the wilds of the world. But if there are correlations in the data with some cases, areas, specifics of the wilderness area, or things the missing person is thought to have done, I'm going to avoid doing those things in order to increase my chances of survival. Any wilderness setting can prove dangerous, obviously, as any urban setting can if you're not paying attention to your surroundings. So avoiding that sine wave crest of hazards would be advisable no matter what the cause is. However, what I believe is that it's possible with some of these cases that something mysterious and unknown could very well be going on, something that is currently outside of the range of the perceived mundane. What I know is that if it were you or someone you cared about that went missing or turned up deceased under mysterious circumstances, it wouldn't matter what the causal theories are or what authorities or individuals believed. You'd just want any amount of closure you could get, and you'd want the mystery solved. Very well put, sir. Thank you. I've been, yeah, thinking about this quite a bit. I guess I'll get on to my conclusions here. I Like Forrest, I've been on quite a journey with this. Mm. I mean, firstly, I'll say it was much more of a McKilla than I was expecting. <laughs> That's true. This is a huge topic. And I also have to say, I didn't realize how polarizing it was. Right. So many passionate people about it. People who are blown away by it. People who are angry about it. The countless subreddits, forums, and discussions about it. There's a lot to unpack, to use an already mm -hmm. overburdened new phrase. So I guess now is the part where I'll tell you what I think after all of this, and it's more nuanced than just, this is fraud, or Bigfoot is kidnapping people in our national parks. Firstly, everyone has confirmation bias. Right. We talked about that. We always try to go into a show with an open mind, but obviously we wouldn't be producing Astonishing Legends if we weren't intrigued with things that are weird and unexplained. So you know going in, we like that stuff. But that said, we also like to deconstruct it when we can, and believe it or not, we still look very, very hard for the mundane explanations. My personal take on David Politis' work is that these are real missing people, yeah. like Forrest said. There are many of them, and a lot of them seem to have vanished under very peculiar circumstances. I'm not sure I agree with him about every case he thinks lines up with the profiles, though. And again, this is only in reference to his very first book. Right. 
But I did feel like there were some cases there that really seemed like very typical abductions by a possible rapist or murderer. However, there were others that seemed a lot like no other human was likely involved in the disappearance. So what does that mean? Does the absence of another person indicate that something more is going on? Or does it just mean if you take a microscope to all of this data, you're going to find inconsistencies that are difficult to explain, but they don't necessarily point to a paranormal cause? The other thing that's happening here is I feel like Politis's research has definitely overlooked mm-hmm. some additional details in a lot of the cases. In fact, and a high percentage of the ones that we personally dug into outside of the book, we found information that paints a different picture when taken on the whole. We've pointed a bunch of those out already. Case in point, you remember in the cold open when we talked about the disappearance of Melvin Nadell and we shared the differences in the scenario presented by Politis versus what we found on the Q Center missing website, Mm -hmm. including the fact that two answer gunshots were heard by his friends when they fired a couple of shots. Well, we found another page about Mr. Nadell's disappearance that contained the following paragraph. This is from southeasternoutdoors.com. Nadell rarely hunted far from camp after becoming lost a few years earlier on a hunting trip in the Jimez Mountains. On that occasion, Nadell had panicked, running through the woods, firing his gun until his buddies found him. Since then, he was not known to go without his GPS, but his GPS was found locked in his Jeep near the campsite along with his cell phone and backpack, end quote. It makes it seem maybe even a little more mysterious to me if that's his M.O., where uh, he just has his uh, 44 Magnum, probably for bear protection and uh, other critters, and he's fired it multiple times before when he was lost. When they fire two shots, there's at least six rounds in that cylinder, right? Some people will just put in five and they keep the hammer on the empty chamber uh, for safety, and that way you can just pull the trigger but it shouldn't go off. But I would think he would have fired off at least the other three or four shots. Yeah, you would think so. And like you said to me yesterday when we were talking about this, and you're probably about to say it now. Or was it the sound of something else shooting him? Or after the two shots by his friends to try and get a response, was it someone or something else just firing two shots to make it seem like he was still alive? Right. Or... Was it just some other hunters firing two shots because they thought everybody was firing shots into the sky for fun? <laughs> well, to let you know that, hey, don't fire over here. We're hunting. Yeah. You know, I mean, generally you don't want to scare There's away a lot the of game. things those shots could have been. But they were the only guys up there, one road, Box yeah. Canyon type situation. I mean, it wasn't a Box Canyon, but very hard to get to from any other way. So that stuff doesn't necessarily track. But Typical uh, additional information that just causes more questions. Right. And it seems like it's super pertinent. I mean, that statement there is flat out says he panicked once after getting lost. But the counterpoint was that he wouldn't have left without his GPS, which was found in his Jeep. So, you know, I have to wonder, and I'm not coming around to this. This Mm -hmm. is not humor. I'm like, serious. I I wonder if he might have gone into the woods to go to the bathroom. He got a little too far or his knee gave out because we know he had a problem with his knee and then he couldn't get back. But that still doesn't explain why the search parties couldn't find him and no trace of him has ever been found. Right. So I don't get that. Mm -hmm. Well, I did a whole breakdown for this episode that we wound up cutting for time because it was ridiculously long, but it was on a paper about animals scattering bones during scavenging. Right. And they're studying this in the forensic sciences. And in this paper, I saw various scenarios where cadavers that were donated to science were allowed to be scavenged. And then later, the researchers came back in and mapped out the disbursement of the remains. And we'll have a link to this paper. Be warned, though, it has graphic photos of uh, decaying bodies in it. 
Anyway, so here's what multiple cases in this paper revealed. Everything that was found when it came to these folks whose bodies were being scavenged, uh, mostly by vultures, was that everything that could be found was within a 50-square-foot area. There are cases, Politis mentions, where the remains are found uh, far, far outside of that range. So it's not really clear what's going on there. Mm -hmm. It doesn't make sense for things to be as scattered as they were, especially from the last place a person was seen. Right. This brings me to my next point and one of major contention for the folks out there who uh, contend that it's not really all that shocking for someone to vanish in the wilderness and not be found at all. I have to say, I'm probably in this camp. No pun intended. <laughs> right. I've done a lot of hiking and camping in my life. Believe it or not, I'm an Eagle Scout. I've learned a whole lot of things about the outdoors, and I still have an extensive vehicle-based camping rig. I love it. But like the ocean, I also have a great respect for the outdoors. And as a former resident of Colorado, I've spent time in both the Rockies and, of course, the Great Smoky Mountains here in North Carolina and Tennessee. It is completely plausible to me that someone can disappear and not be found in either of those places. I don't have a great understanding of search and rescue, so I'm not really qualified to factor that in, but I do have great faith in bloodhounds and tracking dogs, and for my money, all of the lost scents in these stories are bizarre, and I feel like Kyle Polish kind of glosses over that, mm -hmm. but uh, it's not so much with, you know, near a river or a body of water, because the scent gets lost when some, you know, if someone were to drown and fall into a rushing river, there I, I think it's totally possible their body might never be found, and also the dogs would lose the scent, but on dry land, I can't really imagine what would cause all of these dogs to lose sense in a lot of those cases or refuse to track. Yes. There's an implication there, an implication that maybe they smell something that scares them so they can't go on. Or is it an implication that the victim actually fully vanished, like into another dimension? Mm. Yeah, I said that. This is Astonishing Legends, people. If you're here, you know we consider everything. Yeah. After all, we did a six-part <laughs> series on the Patterson-Gimlin film, the Abraham Zapruder of Bigfoot films, and we concluded that it was not a man in a suit. Yeah. So we're already on record as saying, at least in that case, we believe in Bigfoot. However, in looking at all of these cases, uncovering the extra information and digging deeper, I'm not making a connection here. It stands to reason that if Bigfoot is real, it would be amazing at blending in, hiding, prowling, and if it has primate sensibilities, understanding how to stalk and kidnap a human in the wild better than any other potential predator. But I thought Bigfoot, in many cases, had a strong odor. I can't recall one single case in Missing 411 Western U.S. and Canada where a strange smell was mentioned. Not one. Well, by any survivor. That, that's true, by any survivor. So I guess, yeah, that's a good point. So mm. but here I am arguing that these can't be Bigfoot because I believe in Bigfoot, yeah. at least Patty anyway, and Bigfoot stinks. <laughs> yeah, I said that. We'll so, let you explain that to Patty when we meet her one day. Yeah. Still, there's more dimensions to this. As Forrest already pointed out, these are human stories and no amount of armchair investigators, us included, can even begin to imagine what it feels like to lose somebody in this way. We also don't know what David Politis is really like. Sure, we've seen his videos online, but we don't know him. We don't pretend to. We can't speak to his character, but we did talk to someone who can. Alan Atadero. Jared Atadero's father, who is one of the most tragic missing cases mentioned in Politis' first book. Alan said the following about Politis. Quote, I try to stay in contact with David Politis at least once every couple of months because he is like family to me. In fact, I got a nice email from him this morning. End quote. That speaks volumes, folks. This man's son vanished and parts of him were later found, but he was deceased. The Adadero family still doesn't know what happened, and I don't care who you are, unless the same thing happened to you, you can't imagine what that feels like. But this man respects Politis and considers him a friend, or as he said, 
family. That characterization of Politis carries more weight with me personally than online critics who've never met him calling him names and saying he's intentionally deceiving his readers. We've shown how the skeptical narrative is controlled by guerrilla editors at Wikipedia. We've shown that we too have found extra details that seem to water down the mystery a bit on the cases we personally looked further into. We've also shown that some of these cases just don't make any sense at all. How about these more recent ones that are not in Politis's first book, although he may have mentioned them in more recent books or online. This story comes from an article in USA Today on September 18th, 2022, just a few days ago, by Amanda Lee Myers. One month ago, a highly experienced hiker named Kwong Thon vanished without a trace on a relatively simple day hike on Split Mountain in the Sierra Nevada range in California. He was only 1,000 feet from the summit. He waved at the two other hikers he was with for them to go ahead as he had fallen a bit behind. His friends, members of a group of Vietnamese hikers, were able to see him for all but 20 minutes of the remaining hike. When they got back to where they had last seen him, he was gone. Search and Rescue did 10 days of searching with helicopters, infrared, drones, dogs, and found no trace of Mr. Thon. Now, at first you might think, well, it happens, but like many of the cases Politis mentions in his book, Thon was no ordinary hiker. He had previously summited Kilimanjaro, Aconagua, and Denali. He had hiked Everest two times and never summited, but he survived an avalanche there. This guy was no slouch. So where did he go, and why couldn't they find him? Here's a quote from that article. We don't even understand why we haven't found him yet, said Corporal Victor Lawson, one of the incident commanders in charge of the search for Thon. We've been throwing everything at this thing, he said. We should have seen him, something, and we haven't, and that's frustrating to us, end quote. Politis is absolutely right. This stuff happens, and there are definitely cases that completely defy explanation. Maybe Thon will turn up, but for now, it's a mystery. There are also no less than two stories of children, besides Ida Mae Curtis, and Forrest alluded to this earlier, who disappeared and both were found, and both said they had been kept warm and protected by bears. January 2019, North Carolina, Casey Hathaway, three years old, told his family that a bear had kept him safe for the two days he was missing. In 1888, the New York Times carried a story of a two-year-old girl who said a bear kept her warm while she was missing. Look, I'd, I'd love to be scared. I'd love to lean into all the implications of missing 411 Western, but like so many other folks, I'm taking it with a grain of salt. The circumstances of some of the cases are downright bizarre, but when you're in the wild, you are literally hanging out with the most efficient predators our world has to offer. And a lot of the time, you not only don't even know they're there, you will never see them, even if they catch and kill you. My favorite thing is when we find an amazing story or idea and we go to pick it apart and we can't. That wasn't the case here, at least not on the broadest level. And drilling down into the minutia to do that is just too time-consuming because of the sheer volume of the data. Do I believe there are some bizarre, seemingly unexplainable cases in this data set? Absolutely. But it's hard to tell which ones they might be because of the easily found overlooked details in several of the cases. Just a reminder, it's a lot easier to find those details now than it was when the book we're discussing was written 10 years ago. The end result, though, is that because the approach is not airtight, for me anyway, it's difficult to say there's a pattern here or there's something larger at play. Do I still believe in the possibility of an encounter with an unknown primate cryptid or something even more sophisticated happening to folks when they are out in the wild? Well, after what we've learned about Skinwalker Ranch and from Terry Lovelace and countless other legends, absolutely. But can I say for sure that's what's happening here? No. 
But there are still some perplexing mysteries among these cases, ones that, like we said at the outside of part one, will keep you up at night. That's going to wrap up our special series on Missing 411, Western United States and Canada. Join our Patreon to hear us on the much more candid, astonishing junk drawer, which most of the time we do live on video for our patrons. Please remember to support our sponsors. They help keep the show free and the lights on in Blanket Fortiana. Hi. Hi, I'm Carol Reel, and I give Rebecca Findlay permission to Astonishing Legends A. E. C. C. B. A. Galaxy-wide. 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 Use my voice for future compensation. Astonishing Legends is edited by Sarah Voorhees Wendell at VW Sound and co-produced by Tess Feifel, who is also head of research and the social media manager. Special thanks to our announcer, John Bolin. Our theme, which is available as a ringtone, was composed by Judson Crane at foundermusic.com, and our sound design and additional composing is by Ryan McCullough. Our logo was created by Tommy Beaver Design, and our animated graphics for social media and YouTube are done by Joshua Sloan at deadstreetproductions.com. Every episode going back to September of 2020 has a transcription available on its corresponding webpage at our website. Earlier transcriptions can be made available upon request to astonishingcontact at gmail.com. Astonishing Legends would not be possible without you, our listeners. Visit our store at astonishinglegends.com or interact with us and other listeners on Instagram, Twitter, Discord, Facebook, and YouTube. You can also visit us at patreon.com slash astonishinglegends, where patrons have access to additional bonus content, including the Patreon-exclusive show, Astonishing Junk Drawer, which is available every week the main show is not. No part of this show may be reproduced anywhere without permission. Copyright Astonishing Legends Productions. Good night. Good night.